I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> the Twilight Saga. Twilight, New Moon, Eclipse, Breaking Dawn Part 1 and Breaking Dawn Part 2. You're impossibly fast and strong. You gotta give me some answers. I'd rather hear your theories. I have considered radioactive spiders and kryptonite. It's all superhero stuff, right? What if I'm not the hero? What if I'm the bad guy? You know what you are. Your skin is pale white and ice cold. You don't go out into the sunlight. Say it out loud. Say it. Vampire. Are you afraid? No. This isn't real. This kind of stuff just doesn't exist. It does in my world. I just want to try one thing. I don't know how long I've waited for you. What is going on? Security guard at the mill got killed by some kind of animal. An animal? My family, we're different from others of our kind. You brought a snack. What, now he's coming after me? The hunt is his obsession. He's never gonna stop. I'd rather die than to stay away from you. He's got unparalleled senses, absolutely lethal. I'll do whatever it takes to make you safe again. You're faster than the others. But not stronger. I'm strong enough to kill you. You are my life now. After Sharon's disastrous run-in with the Fifty Shades of Grey book trilogy, we decided to go back to the source material and see the Twilight films. Assessed for what they were, what they are, in a vacuum, free of influence from their many fans and detractors. What we got was kind of a mixed bag, so this is going to create something of a podcast for nobody. If you hate Twilight, you won't want to listen to why it's quite good. If you love Twilight, you won't want to listen to how it's quite bad. So really, you're best off opening your mind before we go in. Just not too far, or your brain will fall out. Before we attempted this, Sharon had read all four books, and we had both seen the first three films over three years on DVD. Watching all five, one per night, made the whole thing very episodic, much more like a TV series than movies. And we're going to go through each in turn with a synopsis and full spoilers. So if you want to see them fresh, then why have you taken this long? But do so before you come back and hear what we have to say. And we are very aware of what Mark Kermode has said about these films not being for us. That's a given. However, what teenage girls are devouring is occasionally of interest to us when there are greater cultural ramifications. And of course, it, this is something that would have been intended exactly for me 15 years ago. And would be intended exactly for Lyra in 10 years. Indeed, yes. Uh, these books and films, like it or not, have affected a percentage of a generation of young women, and anybody who says that doesn't affect them in any way is fooling themselves. So we start with Twilight. I believe they're called the Twilight Saga. Like, for everything after the first one is called the Twilight Saga New Moon, the Twilight Saga Eclipse. It's possibly, yeah. possibly so it shows up on Google more. Um, Maybe so. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, Twilight in the year 2008, directed by Catherine Hardwick, 
So let's start with the synopsis, with spoilers. At high school in a new town named Forks, Bella meets Edward. She finds him immediately very attractive. He avoids her. Then he saves her life, and she realizes he's not human. He admits that he's a vampire, and he wants to drink her blood. A lot. Then he introduces his lovely family, the Cullens, who only drink the blood of wild animals. They play baseball. Three more vampires turn up. One of them, James, kidnaps Bella and bites her. Edward and family save her and kill James. Bella demands to become a vampire at some point soon. What we got here is basically a bullet-pointed list. We've highlighted in red, the bad, and in green, the good. And Sharon's also added some stuff in purple just to... And a little spice to things. Just to mess with the system, really. We started off thinking, let's do the bad first and get that out of the way, then do the good. But it's a lot more intermingled than that, especially. Yeah, it, it, it so. zigzags a lot. I mean, one thing that I would just say before we get into this with, with regards to that synopsis, um, Forks is not technically a new town for Bella. She did she did kind of grow up there. Um, I thought she visited every, couple of, uh, every year for a couple was, of weeks. She was born there. Oh, she right. lived there until she was, I think, about three months old. And okay. then her mother left with her. Uh-huh. And her dad still lives there. And that's why she's come back. So she does know Forks. She knows the people around from seeing them every summer but it's not sort of somewhere that she's massively familiar with gotcha so she's she's been there many many times and and everyone there's super friendly and actually straight off the bat when she goes to the high school everyone there is like high school musical levels of friendly it just seems wrong doesn't it When, when she first turns up there's a handful of people who are like looking her up and down scathingly and it's like that's more like it that's what new schools are like when you arrive Mm. but then she bumps into the crew that she's basically going to be spending most of her time with and everybody immediately adores her yeah um it's it's not quite so mary sue because the um that you you get to be external to bella it's not just in her head and she's not always like i i expected her to be biting her lip and brushing her hair away from her eyes the whole way through i think she did like the lip biting once maybe twice yeah you see this is another reason to hate el james because she's destroyed the twilight fiction yeah she she created caricatures of this but anyway um so so there is a function to the humans in this film being so friendly to Bella that that is what she has to leave behind if she's going to go become a vampire. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's not exactly realistic if you've ever actually been to high school. I think the closest thing to my high school was probably something like, uh, I don't know, the faculty. I don't think my high school was quite that bad. But the, the one of the advantages with the faculty is although all the main characters are obviously very attractive people. That's kind of downplayed in the sense that, you know, Josh Hartnett wears completely scrubby clothes that look terrible on him. And, um, uh, oh God, my mind's gone blank. What's her name? Claire Duval. Mm. Is it Claire Duval? The goth. Yes. Um, covers herself in this incredibly thick makeup so that you can't actually see her face. Mm. Um, and the, the person who is supposed to be divinely gorgeous, namely Jordana Brewster. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's obvious that she works very hard looking that way. That much is made clear. Here, everybody is effortlessly attractive. And, yeah. As time went on for me, high school became a bit more like Dazed and Confused, especially in my uh, community college years. There was a lot of shotgun going on back then. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's, it, it, high school wasn't exactly a pleasant place. So, I mean, but, but Forks is shown to be like a little bit sunnier than England. 
It's this miserable shit ass place. It doesn't ever seem to be sunny. It's just it's like well, yeah, so it's, that, like it's I on say, the periphery a little bit of... sunnier than England. <laughs> yeah, it's it's on the periphery of Seattle, isn't it? Or or that's like it's the Seattle's Pacific the Northwest next country. So city. it's like um... Forks is a real place, so you can yeah, look it yeah. up. As um, Catherine Hardwick was uh, want to tell us repeatedly in the uh, commentary, don't listen to the commentary with Catherine Hardwick, Robert oh, Pattinson, so and um, Kristen Stewart. Stewart. Here's the main reason why not. Robert Pattinson throughout these movies keeps his mouth mostly shut and smoulders, and he's sort of watchable. If you're a Twilight fans, I completely understand why they melted at his smoldering. However, when Robert Pattinson talks, he is a stupid fellow. He has this kind of kind of uh, mentality, and um, he says dumb things. And throughout the entire commentary, he kept sort of making feeble jokes, and it it almost seemed like Hardwick and Stewart were a little bit embarrassed. It was like, you, you're very pretty. Now, you don't talk too much. And unfortunately, I knew that going in. I knew that Robert Pattinson was a bit of a div. So the whole way through the entire series hangs on a barely realized character. And I'm not sure when we decided this, but at some point I think I just said, you know who should really have played Edward and the age isn't right, but still Ryan Gosling. I mean, dude is, if if nothing else, the girls adore him and uh, dude can smolder. Yes, he can drive. Oh yeah. Uh, So, yeah, unfortunately, um, I never really grew to like Edward. And we'll go into a bit more about Edward later on. There isn't really all that much to say. And uh, I'm still a little bit um, bewildered that girls could love this character so much. But, yeah. I have things to say on that, but we'll come to that. Another down point on this is especially in this first one, because it's all so uh, uneasy and um, uh, overly dramatized the teen romance that underpins nearly every scene in the first film is quite shallow because it's just sort of like meeting you getting to know you i am so super involved with you without even really knowing you it's kind of like um like deep 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 attraction now for edward it's not so much that he's attracted to her he he just he he wants to drain her more than any other girl he's ever met which is creepy and i believe it's supposed to be you would think, but I mean, it's it's not um, it's not a new setup. This is this is one of the things that kind of put me on the back foot with Twilight when I read the books in the first place. You know how I feel about traditional, in inverted commas, romances, um, and this sort of you see this dazzling prince charming. Um, you wait for him to hint at how taken with you he is, and then just be patient and love will follow it's it's incredibly boring it's incredibly naive it irritates the hell out of me and it, hang on are you saying twilight is incredibly boring i'm saying this particular romantic setup yes this, this template the scenario it, exactly. it wasn't very engaging when, when I saw it appears the in time. in every romance that it's ever appeared in and there have been many mm. um and inevitably when i read stories like that there is a point at which i realize that prince charming is as per shrek a creepy dick he sneaks into her room to watch her sleep this is not a good thing gross how can you be that stupid no 
You're a dork. You're psychotic. Hey, you want to do that interview? I don't want to talk. Wednesday? Tuesday? Dude. You slapped a fish. You punched it. Why would you hit it? I wanted to make some seafood. That's so loserly. There's also a lot of heavy exposition as to the whole vampire thing in the middle. There's uh, Jacob turns up. He, he's her occasional childhood friend. Um, he's uh, dowdied down in this first one, and he's got long hair and he's a little bit awkward. He's nowhere near as buff and gorgeous as he is in, in the later films. Um, and he goes into some sort of like, you know, the legend tells of this legendary vampires whose kung fu magic skills were the stuff of legend. <laughs> And the feud between them and these uh, these wolves. And it's all just sort of a legend. He doesn't really go into the fact that it's um, true. Well, he uh, doesn't know at that point. Of course. Uh, yeah, he, he's just uh, telling her what he's been told. Edward, however, when she finds out he's, like, he's properly a vampire, then goes into this really long explanation series of things and, and sort of tries to push her away. But at the same time, she, she's tenacious. And, uh, yeah, that, that feels a little bit clumsy and it, it all sort of just potters around until you actually get to meet the Cullens. The, the type of vampire that Edward particularly is portrayed as, the, the rest of the Cullens, not so much. There's a little bit of variation, um, but, again, we'll, we'll talk about them in a minute. Um, but it's kind of, it's a weird one for me because I... Right. I have read a lot of vampire fiction, like a lot of vampire fiction. Mm. And this particular style of vampire, it is, he kind of does and doesn't have the things that vampires are supposed to have. You, you do have that sort of sex as monster thing or monster as sex metaphor um, that, that you have in... Uh, like Bram Stoker's Dracula and, and stories that follow that kind of template but sex as monster who wants to have monstrous sex with you but mustn't let himself well, this, is, this is the thing that, that sex to, is this big scary thing that that poor innocent little victim girl can't possibly know about and and um, but desperately wants and therefore vampire is in a position to present her with that but it's all cloaked in teeth and capes so that we know that want it though she does it is frightening and it is right that she is scared of it and wants to stay away from it and, and all the rest and you can imagine how not enamoured of that particular storyline I am. It's but... also, it's an abstinence parable, isn't it? It's actually, it's intentionally uh, written to, to be a no, you must wait, no, you must wait. It kind of is, but it sort of morphs into abstinence porn at some point. Um, <laughs> like, and God, this abstinence is hot. I will say this, I have been reading a lot of fanfic recently, and if it's meant to promote abstinence, it's not working. Because <laughs> um, what a lot of people have done is gone, I really like these characters, but what would be even better is if they shagged. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there you go. Um, but, yeah, the, the other elements of, of this sort of uh, vampire being this scary adult world of, of sex and mat maturing and, and all that kind of thing, they're not really gone into. Um, and again, this is something that I, I know for a fact we're going to touch on as we go through the later films. There are things that should go with this story 
and they don't. Example. They, they've been excised. Example. Uh, well, for example, the immortality thing. Immortality is never really presented as being this great burden, which in every good immortal story, it is. You look at something like, okay, Highlander is, is the obvious yeah. one. Immortality sounds fantastic to an outsider, but those who actually experience it, it's a little less peachy. Absolutely. Um, and it, it's never really delved into in this as, as being sort of, I mean, you've got the element of Edward being basically bored and lonely because he hadn't met his soulmate yet. Well, now he has. Fantastic. So he had how many? 107 years without her and he's now got eternity with her. Mm-hmm. What? You're going to have to do a bit better than air blown through <laughs> Well, I, sorry, I, I thought we were going to go on to that when we get to the very end. Yeah, but that's, still, that's uh, where the... you, you can't argue like... <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right, let me rephrase. Um, it's something which is never really explored in terms of what the prospect of immortality is to Edward, who already has it, and to Bella, who is asking for it. It's, you know, the the things that he brings in as arguments why she shouldn't become a vampire are all extremely uh, unreal. You know, I mean, the, the argument that she won't be able to be with her family anymore, well, he's got a family. She will have a new family. That's, you know, yes, all right, There's she's got a, a good relationship with her father, which she potentially won't have anymore. But then Edward does a pretty good job of pretending to be human. So chances are that at least for a while, Bella's going to be able to maintain those old relationships that supposedly becoming a vampire is going to wrench her away from. Um, the bloodthirst is is mentioned as being something that he, he doesn't want her to have to experience. Mm. But He's managed okay, as have the rest of the Cullens. And we do learn over the course of the saga that there are other vampires who do the animal um, blood-only thing. The vegetarian joke is a bad one. Um, you're still carnivores, dude. We're um, vegetarians. Um, yeah. <laughs> no. A deer is not a vegetable. No, you want me to draw your picture? It really isn't. Um, um, uh, but you see what I mean? Let me stop you for a second. The, the thirst is actually illustrated several times as being... Very, very powerful. Specifically, I think it's the beginning of the next film when um, Bella cuts herself accidentally and uh, one of the uh, Cullens, who's a, a, um, a relative newcomer to this vegetarianism, deer-only diet, goes ballistic. And he's just desperate to get across the room to her and, and drink her blood because just the smell of it is driving him insane. And um, this is like beyond... Alcoholic. This is like beyond crackhead. If an alcoholic walked into a bar and saw a glass of uh, a whiskey on the bar and then ran at it like this, he'd get kicked out immediately. <laughs> it, it's like it's beyond crackhead. It's there is nothing as addictive as what these guys are addicted to, and I don't really think anyone ever really puts that in context for Bella. Well. In this particular, in the first film, all she really sees is is Edward's take on this. And because his bloodthirst is all tied up in his desire for her, it's almost like he's transmuted that need to drink blood into... um, 
need I, to I can't, have her. Exactly. I can't possibly. I've managed for this long and I've, I've resisted and I've avoided temptation and I've been a good boy. So if I want her blood this much, that must mean she's my soulmate. Okay. And that's um, no basis for a relationship, especially not one that's going to last forever. Let's focus on the because the rest of the list is actually after all the exposition. Once you meet the Cullens, Twilight Number One isn't actually all that bad at all. It started to really kind of remind me of X Men, as in the first X Men, and then you know she sort of she she meets these uh, vampires, and most of them are actually pretty pleasant. There's the 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 jock. What's his name? Emmett. Emmett. He's fun to be around. There's uh, uh, Alice, played by Ashley Green, who's bubbly and pleasant and can see the future and is like, we're going to be sisters straight away. And she's just on the side of annoying where it's like, actually, no, she's supposed to be a little bit annoying in how sunny she is. But she's not that. I mean, she's a nice antithesis to this brooding git that Edward is the whole way through. You're going to have such fun and get to be lifelong friends. Yeah. And uh, who else we got? Um, Peter Facinelli as uh, Carlisle. He's the he's the dad. He's he's he's. He, imagine Bill Pullman, but a vampire. He's he's great. I really like him actually. I really like Carlisle as a character. In he has ethics, and it's obvious. He you never does, really get to hear from him that much. People. But he he's upright and virtuous, and he's a doctor, and he wants to try and save people's lives. He has he's the one who encourages them all to eat deer instead of people, and um, he's kind of like. Professor X, only less charismatic. I'm guessing he had to overcome his bloodthirst in order that he could continue being a doctor. Yeah. Yes, of course. Because otherwise you're cutting people over and you're like... (laughs) Well, indeed. Mm. I'd never drink. Wine. Wine. (sighs) I've got to say, um, Bram Stoker's Dracula, I think I mentioned this before, is a work of comedy genius and must be seen, especially if you like Twilight. Um, Or especially if you hate Twilight. Either way, it's a special. Uh, who else we got? Elizabeth Reza is, um, is Carlisle's wife, Esme, the least vampirish of all of them. She's very mumsy, uh, very gentle, very kind, very given. There's nothing vampirish about her at all. It's only when she's like leaping about the place or chucking werewolves around, you're like, oh yeah, she's also a vampire. I forgot that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it, they're a pleasant family. Not too cloyingly awful. Now, if you've watched It's All About the Mormons, the South Park episode, you will notice that there is a kind of parallel that can be drawn with a very insular, very friendly Mormon family that Stephanie Meyer would have grown up with and these guys. So, fair enough. There is... And this will go on. There is something kind of reclusive, kind of culty about them, but it's... It manages in the film to be ever so slightly off the shade of uh, repressive and scary. Put it like this. The Jedi in the Star Wars prequels are a fuck ton scarier than the Cullens. Mm. I think, in essence, what stops them from falling onto the wrong side of creepy Mm. and culty is that they don't try to prevent Bella from... Mm having relationships yeah they treat her like an adult and yeah exactly and in fact i mean this is i i refuse to go through this entire podcast comparing it to the 50 shades of gray but this is something that i do have to mention um the the very distinct difference between um edward and um christian gray is in this uh 
Bella having relationships with other people mm. because in Fifty Shades Anna does not or the relationships that she has with other people are all extremely minor and always in the context of her relationship with Christian mm. what I found most interesting about um, about Twilight once you, we'd got past that first maybe quarter maybe third where the relationship with Edward was the, was centre stage it was constantly kind of being forced to make this non-existent magnetism between Robert Pattinson and Christian Stewart appear. Um, oh, no, was... no, there is magnetism there. They, they do sell that. Just I don't find Edward particularly compelling as a character or Robert Pattinson particularly charismatic as an actor. Maybe the fact that I find neither of those either means that I don't really see much in terms of connection between them, at least not in this first it, one. It, it worked like fuck for everyone else, though. All the Twilight yeah. fans are like, oh, my God, this is so good. That is very true. So clearly it works on some level. Yeah. Um, maybe I was just resisting it a little bit too hard because, I mean, and I, I did say this to you before, one of the reasons that, that I was always... That is a natural always... reaction as a grown-up. <laughs> well, not just from that perspective, but, I mean, one of the reasons that I never liked Titanic for years and years and years was because I would watch it and think, they really want me to respond to this relationship and, and they I really want, want me to, to cry. I'm not going to cry. And I, you know, it's like... I don't like feeling like my emotions are being very deliberately manipulated mm. and it's working. That's the frustrating part is that I, I do have a response to it and I squash it down because I don't like feeling that that's being dragged out of me by somebody else's say so. Interesting. He did it again in Avatar and you were fine with that. You went outside and touched a tree. <laughs> yes, I did. That's very true. Um, and some boys sniggered at you and you did, were like, oh, fucking I kill you, you bastard. Yeah. Um, although I didn't kill them, which was very restrained of me. Um, but um, yeah, maybe I'm I'm growing as a person and, and feeling more comfortable with having my emotions tweaked by marketers. Mm. Um, but um, but as long as you're aware of it when you, when when it's happening, indeed. But to get back to my original, kind of like when you're watching the uh, the Star Trek, uh, the, the the first new Star Trek film, you're like, wow, they really are pushing all the buttons, ticking off a giant list of things that people know about Star Trek. But it's great fun. Maybe it's just needing to feel that there is some semblance of authenticity in it. Mm. Anyway. I tend not to try to demand that of everything because yeah. nothing. You will inevitably it be can't all be Cameron Crowe. No, that's true. Um, but uh, Bella's relationship with Charlie and... Oh, yeah, uh, Billy um, Burke is Charlie. Is, is, he is. He's constantly great. paternal and likeable and, and uh, Slightly sympathetic. Slightly baffled as well. by yeah, everything that's going on. He, he is not ever clued in on the whole vampire thing it's not till the fifth film where anybody tells him oh dude there's some there's some crazy goings on in forks you didn't know about and your daughter's heavily involved he's just you know looking out for what's best for her and actually speaking of what's best for her what you said about uh, edward not being as uh, possessive as say christian gray he constantly throughout all of these films seems to want what's best for her and her survival and, and continued existence and happiness so to his credit he thinks about her more than he thinks about him. Mm. A lot more. I think, and it is a while since I've read the books, but I personally think that this that side of him comes through a lot more prominently in the films than it did in the books. Because I remember when I was reading the books, I was thinking, he is quite creepy and possessive and not very pleasant. Right. There, so I mean, either... he does get possessive... Um... Later on, when Jacob starts to really horn in on Bella, he's like... <laughs> <laughs> there's a bit of ape fighting that's one way of putting it oh, <laughs> um, 
It ain't the boobs, though, because she hasn't got any. Other good things about uh, these productions. Stephanie Meyer was heavily involved in these productions. It had one screenwriter who adapted it the whole way through. Hang on a second. Uh, Melissa Rosenberg. And having that one person, just like Steve Clover's for Harry Potter, having that one person with the through flow, they know what they were leading to. They, they read the books closely, carefully. Um, and let me just double check this one. Breaking Dawn came out in uh, August 2008. And the Twilight film came out in November 2008. So she'd clearly read all but the last book when she was uh, adapting the first film. And um, they were all filmed back-to-back as well. Like, they didn't stop for breath. It wasn't like uh, Harry Potter where they had to take a year and a half away occasionally for development and to allow the kids to grow. Uh, and it sure as hell wasn't as much of a complete pig fuck as the Narnia films have become. And um, they had the guts to just get them done as opposed to, say, The Golden Compass, where they had their eye clearly just on the money. And they're also, speaking of money, they were made for very little money and made an insane amount back, like a crazy amount back. The first Twilight film um, cost $37 million and made back $392 million. And they proceeded from there to earn about 10 times their budget pretty much across the board. That is a goldmine for a, a movie studio. So that was extremely well handled, and they could have just made it ridiculously overblown. I will say the last film with the most expensive looked quite cheap in comparison to, say, the similarly priced Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, which was $125 million for the uh, It was a piece for each Hallow, and um, uh, it was $110 million for uh, Breaking Dawn Part 2, and they don't look anything alike in terms of realisation of what that money can do. There isn't so much of an obvious escalation from 38 million to 110 million. There's more fighting and more effects. Anna Kendrick, again, I think this is one of the first films she was in that people really noticed her in. Uh, as uh, one of the human girls, uh, as Jessica, she was nice, watchable, pleasant, fun. Less so in the second movie where she comes off like a bit of a div. That's, I think, more like her character in the book. Right. So hang on, she, in the book, she's more dumb. She's more irritating. Ugh. Well, I suppose it's Jessica, Anna Kendrick's natural charms basically sort of won out in that particular scenario. She is very sweet. Mm. Um, and when it gets really good, when they get to Edward's bedroom, not remotely what I'm talking about, folks who haven't seen it yet, um, there's no bed. Uh, he says, this is where I come to brood. And I think, oh, God, there's going to be one of these scenes. <laughs> And then he puts on a lovely piece of music, Claire de Lune, and it's quiet and they talk and uh, it's withheld. And it's, I know what you say about, uh, you know, just chucking the porn into it, but there is something quite elemental about a relationship that cannot happen uh, under um, cultural or in, the, in this case, safety reasons, uh, which sort of harkens back to Jane Austen novels, where there's a certain amount of austerity and everyone's kind of withheld, where a look can mean a huge amount. A kiss can mean like marriage. So, and also, if you, if you look at it in pure terms of, of how old Bella is and how old Edward is supposed to be. Yeah, Bella, Bella's 17. He... Yeah, so Bella's 17. He's they're, like they're both, I think they're both supposed to be about 17, but... It, it, at that age, the process of getting to know somebody 
through the things that they surround them with, through themselves with, through their music, through their, their books, things like that. That's something that is quite fundamental to that type of relationship at that stage of your life. Um, and your your room is your personal space at that age, and you're letting somebody who is essentially a stranger into that personal space and sharing with them who you are. And it's it's kind of almost like it, it's got a feeling to it of that first exploratory sex scene that you might get with an older um, romance. Does that make sense? Yeah. The film accelerates at this point. They go to have a fun, innocuous baseball game with mutant powers. And they're sort of running around the track and at extreme speed, like Roadrunner. And um, they have to play in thunderstorms so that everybody will think that when they hit the ball, it's um, thunder because it's so loud. Really? Is that part of the book? That's part of the film. Oh. Do you not remember? She says to him, I see now why you have to play. You have to wait for a storm to play. Yeah. I see why you have to play in thunderstorms because you look totally badass. And of course, they they're play supermassive black hole by Muse, always a good thing. Um, and then the other vampires turn up, and you've seen them hunting regular terrified humans earlier, and there's three of them. And um, one of them's all dreadlocky, the other one's a girl. And uh, then you've got Cam Gigandet as uh, James. And it's like he's a young Brad Pitt stunt double. In a good way. He's got this really creepy, like he's got black eyes and he's got this animalistic head tilt about him. Uh, folks who are familiar with X-Men will uh, agree he is quite saber-toothy in his behavior and his uh, uh, sadistic treatment of his prey. When he catches a whiff of bellow and he realizes that they've got a human amongst vampires, there's this sudden, oh, the shit just got real that happens. And like they're all sort of squaring off against each other. Uh, and it's a little bit kind of sharks and the jets. But at the same time, a that, little bit. A lot. And that persists throughout the series because, of course, the Cullens are also up against werewolves and there's various rival gangs. Um, but. Um, there is a palpable sense of danger from this point. And then the Cullens are like, right, that's it. This guy's a hunter. He's going to hunt you to the ends of the earth. He's going to fucking kill you. We've got to get you to safety. And then it repels itself forwards. And then she gets catch, captured by James. And he takes her to the ballet studio. And there's this big final dramatic end sequence where he wants her to die f so that Edward can be heartbroken and then he can kill Edward. He's just this, like, really sadistic kind of guy. And... Um, uh, anyone, anyone, anyone who's seen Never Back Down will recognize him as uh, the uh, bully from the Cobra Kai and Karate Kid. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, it's uh, his Brad Pittiness and saber-toothiness. And uh, when Edward finally unleashes on him, when he turns up to rescue Bella like a, uh, a knight in dark armor, um, it's suitably charged. And I actually got a little bit choked up but during the point where Bella is uh, she's bitten and she's screaming and Edward's trying to work out how to save her and um, has to suck out the venom of the vampire and, and it, it's again this is the point where Catherine Hardwick really kind of comes into herself and, and starts directing properly which is a shame that she left it right to the end yeah but I do quite this the the uh, the other vampire group, I quite like the contrast between them because, yes, although it is a little bit sort of West Side Story, um, it's, uh, you've, you've got the um, Victoria and her gang. are They're almost Celtic 
if that makes sense. Victoria mm. has this sort of very long mane of, of curly red hair and she wears what looks like a lion fur or something around her shoulders all the time. Um, and, um, and that was sort of the impression that I got of them was that they were sort of very, very old and part of kind of a warrior sect or something like that. And then you've got the Cullens who regardless of of what point in history they've all come from and there is something very sort of late victorian to early 20s about all of them oh there's a bit of a flashback when jacob's talking about the cullens meeting the werewolves oh my god and they're dressed like they're out fox hunting it's the least practical (laughs) clothes for hunting deer on foot i've ever seen they look like a bunch of twits playing croquet until oh, the tell last film when Bella goes after the deer in a blue cocktail dress. And That's no the most impractical uh, outfit for hunting deer. But anyway, um, that was the, done. That was shot deliberately to make it seem like even though she appears fragile, she's actually a total badass. Yeah, no, no, I know. Um, but um, but the thing with the Collins is that if you look at them, they are all about image. They're all about what they're presenting to the outside world. They have it in their heads what humans are supposed to look like, and they go out of their way to look as human as possible and in the process of doing so they actually go a little bit far and start stepping into the uncanny valley um i mean when they they have the baseball um match they're all dressed like professional baseball players how many families do you know who dress up like that in order to play sport in the back garden imagine how massive their wardrobes are yes well they've obviously had plenty of time to um amass their their stuff Mm. but it it does um that to me gives them a little bit of a, a slightly wistful air that they're always pretending to be this thing that they're not, which is a normal human American family. So I think, yeah, well, that, we'll put a lid on that first film. I think the next few will take a lot less time to explain because we'll already have the scene set. Let's move on to New Moon from 2009, directed by Chris Weitz, director of the aforementioned Golden Compass. Mm-hmm. Bella and Edward are boyfriend and girlfriend. Bella is scared that she will grow old someday. Edward gets scared that Bella will be hurt spending time with him and refuses to turn her into a vampire. He leaves. Bella grieves. She meets with her friend Jacob, who is now very hot. Victoria, the girlfriend of James the vampire Edward killed, hunts Bella and kills her father's friend. Jacob saves Bella after she jumps off a cliff. Turns out he's a werewolf, and he and his wolfy family of Native Americans have an uneasy truce with the Cullens. Bella finds out that Edward has gone to a group of elder vampire ponces called the Volturi to ask them to kill him and end his pain. Bella flies to Italy and stops him. The Volturi are very interested in the fact that Bella can block their magic powers. She has the power to nullify powers. Edward asks Bella to marry him. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. A lot of understatement in that synopsis. Yeah, this one's very <laughs> dramatic. It's very intense, isn't very it? Heartfelt. I mean, you, you say Bella grieves. Bella does not grieve. Bella is plunged into a full-scale, many-months-long depression. Yeah, she's paralysed in a chair for for a wonderful... Um, what, is, is it a tracking show? It just goes round and round yeah. the room and the, and and the seasons it, change. That's right, yeah. I, it is... It sounds like a weird thing to say about such a, an emotionally... Um, horrendous time for a human being but that section is fantastic absolutely 
Uh, it, it wasn't so much the sitting in the chair looking miserable. It's the points where it sort of while it, while the music's going on, it cuts to Bella sleeping and she's screaming in her sleep and, and waking herself up. And her father, Charlie, sells that moment because he doesn't know what to do with her. He doesn't know what's going on with her. He just knows that her boyfriend's left and he doesn't get why she's that involved. And he's you know when he speaks to her, he's like you know enough of this. Um, but yeah, it's, it's like a knife stabbing at her over and over again. And, and, uh, it's, it, even if you've, you've sort of sat through the first one going, puh, 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 when you see this bit, it takes away all the vampires and it's just a girl hurting and everyone who's really hurt like that will be able to feel a little bit of, yeah, okay, I get that. Well, it does. It does get across, um, and, and essentially if you take away all the supernatural elements, one of the things that this, uh, series of stories does actually really well is um the intensity of adolescent emotion and the uh again looking back on it with total 35 year old cynicism the hormonal burn that hits you at around that age and literally just needs to latch on to something and if it if it manages to latch on to somebody who appears to reciprocate the intensity of those feelings it can be strong enough to make you think this is a relationship for all time and very occasionally it is but that the magnitude of what you feel at that age is really hard to replicate once you've passed out of that that sort of um, phase of, of everything being so intense and being so huge, and part of it is probably because it's it's probably the first time you felt anything like that. Um, but the the whole thing about um, if when they look at, at sort of the the brain chemicals and the the um, neural patterns of people who are in love in in the you know in love in capital letters romance boom fireworks etc etc and the the patterns of people who are experiencing um kind of mental uh instability they are very similar because it's just so chaotic and you feel so much all the time and you know the idea of that grabbing on to quite often the nearest thing available that actually like i say appears to reciprocate is is big it's huge at that age it's it's kind of harder to identify it with it as an older person and i think that's again one of the reasons why i was kind of really keen to push this away when i first experienced it yeah um this film i can't remember which film it was but one of them started really making me think about um the idea that maybe the antithesis of love is not hate that it's not like a straight line with love at one end and hate at the other and one is the opposite of the other i began to think maybe it's actually two straight lines at the end of one is love at the end of that same one is obsession the idea being if you love somebody truly and utterly you will let them go for their own good if you're obsessed with them truly and utterly, you will never let them go, even if it's for their own good. So it's, it's, it's kind of like a clock face with love at the top and obsession just slightly like at, at uh, 11.59, but you can't go left. You can only go all the way around clockwise to obsession. 
I think there's... You can't be obsessed about somebody and then suddenly love them, unless you're the Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> well, I don't know. It depends. But there's there's elements of, of sort of this is where uh, hate and resentment start to come into it as well, because you've... But that's, hang on, what... before we carry on, the other line is you've got hate at one end and you've got not giving a fuck at the other end. Oh, the idea being that yeah. if you're throwing all your energy into hating this person, it's actually a little bit closer to obsession. But if you take away all that energy just completely, you don't give a fuck. Absolutely. Well, the, the true opposite of all of these incredibly intense emotions is apathy, is, is you know, not, as you say, not giving a fuck about this person or, or their um, their role in your life. Um, but the the whole sort of, you know, love edging into obsession thing, that this is where you start to get elements of, of maybe being angry at that person because you can't control them to make them do what you want them to do. Yeah. And they may not uh, they may not um, return the love that you supposedly feel for them. And rather than looking at it in terms of, well, all right, maybe I'm just not the one to make them happy, that then becomes, no, I will make you love me and you will stay with me and you you know, yeah. you know will choose me. Somebody who's good with art programs and understands these concepts that we're laying down, draw us like a, 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 a table or a circle or something that represents this. Give us a graph or something. <laughs> You don't need a graph for that. What you want for that is, is a pie a chart. Pie chart. <laughs> okay. A bad thing about uh, New Moon. Eddie Gathegi as Laurent is suddenly very out of character. This is the raster from the end of the uh, um, first movie. He was mates with Victoria, who's now hunting Bella. He was mates with James, who uh, was killed for hunting Bella. Uh, at the end of Twilight, he's like, ah, I'm sick of their bullshit. And he actually warns the Cullens about it. And then when they meet him again, when Bella meets him again, he's like, oh, Victoria's coming for you and I'm going to kill you myself. And it's like, wait a second. You said you didn't give a fuck anymore. So it's just, uh, one of the annoying things about the whole series is because it's always from Bella's point of view. Shit is happening, which she is not party to. And it, it, some of it you get to see in, um, specifically in Eclipse, you get to see stuff that Bella really has no idea about. And whenever it cuts to Volteri on their own, but they're a bunch of prats. Um, but I, read, I wanted to know more about Victoria. And unfortunately, when she speaks, it's not all that fascinating. But in this second one, Victoria never says a word. And uh, she's actually a lot more powerful as a presence by just sort of stalking Bella and uh, hanging around the forest. And she's this sort of, at one point, uh, the camera cuts out up behind um, uh, uh, Charlie's dad and her, uh, his friend. And you can just sort of see blurrily in the background Victoria's shock of orange hair as she hangs from one of the treetops. You're like, oh, my God, she's like a jungle cat. There, she does emphasise that animalistic element of the vampires mm. um, in this one, which I f actually find more interesting than the overtly trying to be human side of them that has mostly been put across in the first one. In these first two, Victoria is played by Rachel Lefebvre, um, and there was a scheduling conflict for Eclipse, and she was had to do something called Barney's story or something for ten days, and they said, "Right, you're out." And it's like, "Well, oh, wait a second, I can probably nope, you're out. We've got Bryce Dallas Howard." And uh, some fans protested and tried to get her back in the film, but it was too late, and they'd already filmed it, and it was like, "Whoa!" And it almost seemed like they were trying to keep everyone in line. And uh, look, you know, we can replace you. Don't even think about doing a. Um, What's it like? Crispin Glover 
on us and, get, and try and hold out for some money. There were a few of them, a few of the Cullens who were a bit sort of, uh, hey, Bella and Edward and Jacob are getting paid enormous sums of money and we're not. And they were basically told, look, this is the deal. Put up or shut up or we'll, we'll write you out of this story and recast easily and no one will be able to do shit because the people they really care about uh, are Bella, Edward and Jacob. On the upside, Edward's potential suicide is complicated. There's no dramatic walking out to greet the sunrise for him. Uh, he's... Um, how does that actually take place? Let's do that in a bit, actually. That's near the end. Sure. I suppose you could probably... I, I've, I've highlighted in, in, the, in the good side of things, Taylor Lautner is supremely hot as Jacob. Do you want to field this one? Because this is his film to shine. Um, <laughs> yes. Yes, he is. Um, I suppose... Do, do I technically have to declare bias at this point? You can if you want. Yeah. Are you in Team Jacob? I've got to admit, Jacob turned me into a total horn dog. <laughs> it was actually snatcher. a little bit depressing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Having noted on the IMDb that Taylor Lautner was born in 1992, I thought, okay, that's fine. I'm going to hell. I can deal with that. A special hell. The special hell. The um, special hell. Yeah. Man, Christina but- Hendricks would have been good in this film. She would. Possibly as Victoria. I was going to say, yeah. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Ah, Jacob. oh God, this is really hard. He I has a really nice straight. chest. He's he has got a really beautiful nice chest. white teeth. He's got um, sculpted black hair. Well, He's always in the rain. He's okay. he really worked out. A lot of it kind of feeds into um, to my opinions on how the relationship between the three of them progresses at this point um because like a lot of people my age male and female and and all of the permutations in between uh, my perspective on kind of adolescent relationships and how they go has been kind of shaped by john hughes movies which is not a bad thing it's not a bad thing dude knew his teenagers he did indeed he did indeed but this what builds between uh, Bella and Jacob in in this film, and because basically after Edward disappears and Bella has her whole um, depressed thing, she realizes that um, if, if she puts That's herself an understatement in statement right there, well exactly, um, she realizes that if she puts herself in dangerous situations, she gets Edward's she sees visions of Edward basically. Yeah, she so she goes on a bike ride with a rapist. Say yeah, um, she gets his voice in her head saying, you know, you you have to take care of yourself. You're not. I don't want you to to come to harm. But because that's the only way she can see a little bit Christian Grey there. Well, see, I don't think that's him because the the whole point of this is that um, he couldn't read her thoughts. So it seems a little bit incongruous that all of a sudden he can project himself into her mind. Mm. I think that's her. Yeah. But that her self, her sense of self-preservation is coming out as Edward's voice. Right. So she's putting herself in deliberately dangerous situations so that she can see him. Well, she, and, he never actually saves her. In fact, no. uh, he, he, he finds he believes that she's dead at one point and, and yeah. didn't do a damn thing to stop it. Exactly. So it's not him. 
No. Um, but there's there's a point at which she, she jumps off a cliff, not as a suicide thing. She's seen some of the, the local guys um, cliff diving and she thinks, aha, that looks dangerous. I'll give that a go and see if it gives me another vision of Edward. And um, obviously not being really built for cliff diving, um, she ends up getting into difficulties and Jacob ends up saving her. And because they've had this he's been the friend who was there for her when Edward disappeared. And it's, it's obvious in the first bit that there's something growing between them, at least on Jacob's side. And Bella seems to kind of reciprocate and kind of not. And she's still all hung up on Edward. But the point at which this kind of really clicked for me that I was never going to appreciate the fact that she was going to end up with Edward is that, there are two particular uh, John Hughes movies that I respond to in very different ways. I am probably one of the only teenage girls ever who really didn't like the way Pretty in Pink ended. Uh-huh. Right? Now, okay, statute of limitations on John Hughes movies being well and truly over. If you haven't seen them already, then tough. Um, but <laughs> Pretty in Pink, Molly Ringwald is basically put in the position of having to choose sort of it's not really a choice but um she she has two options she has ducky who has been her friend forever and adores her and it you know is always there for her and listens to her and uh, and all the rest of it and then she has i can't even remember his name andrew mccarthy blaine yes thank you um who is sort of the prince described on the front cover as a pretty cool guy yeah, indeed. And it's it, it's not that I have anything against Andrew McCarthy. I loved Andrew McCarthy. In in most of his other roles, I thought he was absolutely fantastic. But you loved John, John Cryer more because he was no, outcast? No, no, it's it, well, that, that was kind of part of it. But basically, this idea that if you meet, if you see somebody across a crowded room, right, and, and gender is irrelevant at this point, if you see somebody and you think, my God, that person is perfect. All I want in life is to be with them. They are my ideal. That poor sod has nowhere to go but down so to speak right well indeed um so when you inevitably in in a romance do get to know them i it's for them to get more wonderful seems a bit ridiculous to me the kind of relationship that makes more sense to me are the ones where this is somebody that you've known for a long time that you have not necessarily like oceans in common with but that you like spending time with if you're if you're with somebody and being with them makes you feel calm and makes you feel like you can be yourself and relaxed and happy and just that you are enjoying what's happening just being in their company that's the person that you grab and hang on to and don't let go of the person who makes you feel all confused and jumbled up and and but they're so devastatingly wonderful and and i can't they're so mean to me yeah no that's don't do that. They turn out to be a dick. In 99% of cases, they turn out to be a dick. And if they don't, then inevitably the relationship will reach a point where it disappoints from the, the image that you had built up in your head. So in Pretty in Pink, Molly Ringwald ends up with Blaine and poor Ducky has to go and just, you know, be a nerd somewhere off on his own. Um, Is that the end of you? you got to go and be a nerd somewhere on your own. They're basically. I, I mean, it's a while <laughs> since I've seen okay. it. Okay. But... I didn't realise that was the rule. Yeah, but that's that's the essence of it. Anyway, um, the other one, which kind of contrasts that, is Some Kind of Wonderful, where Eric Stoltz 
gets to be with the girl who's been his best friend forever and, and you know, has been there for him. And, and I don't get why the guy gets to have the person who knows him and understands him and cares about him and, and just wants him to, you know, wants him to be happy. And the girl has to end up with dickhead Prince Charming. So it's like if in at the end of Teen Wolf, he'd have just dived on Heather and left Booth crying in the audience. Absolutely. She wasn't really called Heather, was she? No. no. Dude, he's got Heather. Yeah. I can't remember what her actual name was. But yes, it, all the films that, that I ever really responded to in terms of relationships were the ones where it was like, you've, you know, you've been my friend for so long. I didn't realize that what I felt for you was actually more than that. And you can be damn sure that when Lyra reaches an age where I'm giving her any kind of relationship advice which may well never happen but if it does it will be if there is somebody that you are really close to and they seem to understand you go with that don't be looking for the the idealized stranger who you know you project all of these fantasy romances onto and can't possibly meet them and to me that's what edward always was this fantasy prince charming who is inevitably going to disappoint and jacob was the friend that she'd known since she was knee high to a grasshopper and all of a sudden had got immensely hot while nobody was looking so it's like Uh, having your cake and having another cake that's awesome yeah, <laughs> basically. But there's a lot of that was down to Taylor Lautner, to be fair. He wasn't supposed to come back as Jacob later on in the series because in, in the books, Jacob literally grows so much because, like of, the, because yeah. of the werewolf thing, yeah. Um, that, in consequence, it seems like a really good magic trick. It's, it's definitely the same act to me. Like, wow. Well, he really, he, wanted, he really wanted to come back and play the, play the part again. And he said, look, if I work out, if I get really buff, will you let me come back and do it? At least he wasn't wearing <laughs> glasses before with his hair done up in a tight bun. That's true. But, and, and a massive side effect for him was that he got really buff. And all of a yeah. sudden, women the world over were like, uh-huh. I suppose, yeah, it would have been kind of cool to be in the uh, uh, car room when he sort of came back in after several months of eating a lot of potatoes and doing lots of bench presses and uh, as you can see i'm now really hot exactly so you see this is this is the problem for me and this is where new moon really starts to fall down uh-huh. um in that you know she's bella's doing this whole oh my god must find edward soulmate thing and i'm like there's better for you look at it he's right there i mean for goodness sake you don't I think he even says at one point he has this this wonderful little speech about being with me would be as easy as breathing. It's you know you don't, you have, to don't do have to try, you don't have to do anything, you don't have to be anything you're not. You don't have you to change. Have, yeah, you, you that's just the thing. Have if she's be... with the werewolf, she won't become a werewolf. I didn't even understand that because they didn't make it clear. I thought, well, just just you know, if we're going by vampire rules, surely he just bites her and then she's a werewolf too. No, no, you've they're not. Be they're not born a werewolf. Yeah. So, uh, Speaking of vampire rules, no real explanation as to why they sparkle. I know, bobbins, I, aren't they? <laughs> I know that drives everybody crazy. You kind of have to just go, okay, the vampires sparkle, now let's move on. You could, I, I, I've said before, they're basically they have no weaknesses at all, only strengths as vampires. But then I looked really at how they were addressing the thirst issue and the fact that they're dribbling crackheads and how isolated that actually makes them. And I thought, no, actually... That's a real side effect. That's a real drawback. 
They're not just having a great time being vampires. They really can't be around humans without actually being in some pain. So that's their drawback. But then you look at how that's presented in the different groups of vampires mm. and it, it all depends. It's all relative on how their outlook on life is because, yes, that's terrible for the Cullens. And, yes, they have to keep themselves away from humans when they're hungry because they, they don't want to mess up the, the relationships and the lives that they've got. But you look at the Volturi who fully embrace that side of themselves. Yeah, but they're awful they don't give a characters. Crap. They don't need humans to be around. And, well, yeah, they're characters exactly. that you want to be off the screen as soon as possible. I think yes. it's not poncing up the place because they're just these and again they are the epitome of this sort of if you imagine the vampire the masquerade type vampires mm. only without the politics which is the only interesting bit of vampire the masquerade or um, Anne Rice's vampire chronicles I can't believe we've taken nearly an hour to mention Anne Rice yeah, but, so but, much but of these books chronicles without the sex which is the only interesting bit of, of Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles um, and you've well and, and the history but that's by you the love Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles you read them religiously as a teenager yes I know but the vampires themselves mm. are very dull they if are... you've seen Interview with the Vampire folks remember Antonio Banderas as Armand him and all his poncy friends yes. those are the Volturi yes they are and they're, they're, they decide who and how, who becomes a vampire and how they, those vampires behave. They're dictators, basically. Uh, I'm not good looking. I was just kidding. Yeah, I am. So, yeah, there's a bunch of, of, of stupid rules and you kind of got to go, oh, okay, right, that's all the whole vampire thing. Now let's move on. And uh, unfortunately, the rules about werewolves are sort of mumbled halfway through gritted teeth during a scene where Jacob's staring at Bella, one of the many, many scenes. Um, and, uh, and so it's, it's less clear. And there was a bit of, I got to the end of the film, and uh, the film series, and I won't spoil exactly what it was, but I was like, oh, well, this will be the case. And you went, no, this, this is not the case. And I was like, well, when did they explain that? And they never really seemed to. But yeah, I don't, I don't want to spoil the last film. We'll get, get to that when we get to that. But I um, don't think they were writing these films for people who were not already fans of the book. I think that's what it comes down to. Well, no, because there's plenty of people like Mark Kermo didn't uh, read the books, and Paul Shotton and Tony well, no, Atkins you, you didn't don't, read the books. You don't have to, but a lot of the background information they haven't bothered to put it in. So kind of like the Harry Potter, specifically Azkaban. Yeah, if you know, you know. If you don't know, you don't care. That is yeah, but a lot of that really does sort of play into how it ends, surely. Yes, it does. And that's one of the reasons why I'm not wildly keen on Breaking Dawn Part 2. Mm, we'll get to that later. Yes, we will. Uh, but, uh, yeah. It, right, here's the other thing that, that, that is problematic about um, uh, just maybe the entire series, but specifically um, New Moon. It never really feels like Bella has a choice. She chose to be with Edward in the first film, and Jacob, throughout the series, is a distraction. It never seems like she's going to choose him, which is fine, I suppose. But it always seemed to be presented as this choice, and like, ooh, whose camp are you in? Are you in Team Edward or Tim Jacob? And it's like, if you were in Team Jacob, you were fighting a losing battle with the underdog, sorry, the whole way through, because she was never going to pick him. Because she's an idiot. Yeah, no. I, I kind of have to mention that now because obviously that that does apply through the whole series because you know you're watching it through and you're like at no point is Bella really basically she and uh, Edward are soulmates and that's never going to change. 
But my question would be, how can you be soulmates with somebody who keeps insisting they don't have a soul? They don't have a soul. Except for the fact that Carlisle and, in fact, most of the uh, Cullens are extremely kind. And Mm. kindness has to come from somewhere. It can't come from some black pit. Mm, Absolutely. But if Edward focused on his behaviour rather than obsessing about the fact that he was a vampire... His biology, yeah. yeah. That might make so. him a more interesting character. But the, the the idea of these all of these strengths and none of the weaknesses that vampires traditionally have. Yeah, they're all daywalkers. This, they're all blade. Yeah. And not only are they daywalkers, but when they go out in the sun, they look like flipping rhinestone statues. Um, but There is a bit where Edward sort of walks out into the sunshine to try to um, reveal himself to the world, which will make the Volturi kill him. And Bella's like, no! and running at him okay folks imagine you're in a tuscan street in italy and some boy comes out of a church and glitters like you know he takes off his shirt and he sparkles in the sunlight the world would not suddenly go vampires that guy's really a vampire if he shouted at the street i'm a vampire behold and then sparkled they'd go I'm not entirely sure how those two things marry up, but this goth is very, very dedicated. <laughs> That's all they'd say. See, it wouldn't really be revealing himself to the world. Together. But I mean, even if he was just pretending to be uh, what we consider to be a vampire, if he's not going to explode in the sunlight, but if he comes out in, say, at night to a bunch of, um, you know, watching people in the street and goes, I'm a vampire, they would go, that goth's really, really into it. But they would never. You're not really coming out. You're not really revealing yourself to the world. I suppose you could leap into the air and then come back down again and go, huh? How'd I do that, huh? Because I'm a vampire. And nobody in this world seems to be at all familiar with the fictional vampire lore and mm. mythology. But yeah, all no, the glittering. stuff Bella goes and looks up is, is like proper ancient mythology stuff. The cold ones. No, yes. They've never seen a vampire movie, although uh, she does have in the first film this sort of like uh, uh, a weird fantasy about this sort of very scratchy <laughs> 80s looking Phantom of the Opera yeah. style and Edward kissing her on a silken bed and it's like, ooh. Is that supposed to be hilarious? I think it is. I think it is, yeah. yeah. I think that is deliberately supposed to be yeah. amusing. But then... Ye- the, the point at which um, at the tail end of the film, Edward's got to the stage of, of wanting to die because he mm. thinks that Bella is dead. Um, and this is the point at which in, again, many of the vampire fictions that I have consumed in the course of my life, um, the extremely uh, miserable vampire hero walks out into the sunrise and that's his death. That's, you know, there's this, it's usually portrayed as sort of this huge choice thing that he embraces the light and in doing so, that is his last action. Um, And um, uh, Edward can't do that. He, He doesn't have that option. That's why he ends up with the Volturi, basically wanting them to rip him to shreds because that's the yeah. only way vampires can die in this. For non-fans, by the way, that's how you kill a vampire. They're basically made of porcelain and you rip their heads off and their arms and then you burn the bits of them. Yeah. Uh-huh. I suppose that, that, that compounds the idea that they're hollow and don't have souls. Yeah, I suppose so. And they do when you uh, when there's fights going on later on as well. You can see that when they get hit particularly hard, their skin kind of cracks and and crazes as at, like you say, like porcelain being smashed. And it heals again very quickly if they haven't actually had their heads broken off. But yeah, 
Yeah. Speaking of the Volturi, we get Michael Sheen here. Now, folks may remember Michael Sheen from the Underworld films, where he was actually, in comparison to this, relatively restrained. Um, I think his name's Lucian in, in the Underworld films. Now, I will say, I hate the Underworld films. They're awful. But Michael Sheen in this is utterly mental. And he's, like, rolling his eyes and, like, doing a really eccentric performance, like... I suppose he's a bit yeah. like a comedy version of Gary Oldman in um, uh, Dracula. Yeah, but really over the top. The voice is the, is the main thing. Yeah. He's so high-pitched on He whiny. looks like Rick Mayle. He does. And the uh, fact that one of his brothers looks like... Neil. Neil really doesn't ones. hurt that particular analogy. Oh, guys, one of the Cullens has come. They really like bringing me down. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you also meet uh, Dakota Fanning in this, and she's this really horrible... Um, uh, she has, like... She can do Crucio, basically. Yeah. And, um, yeah, she's, she's basically the, the image of Armand as written in the books uh, of the, uh, um, the Anne Rice ones. Yes, like, he, uh, is, a, he is golden, much younger. A beautiful golden child who's incredibly sadistic. That's right. Although the other brother, um, who's played by chap who plays Grindelwald in um, the Harry Potter films, yeah. um, he looks like Armand was supposed to look, yeah. in my head. So yeah, just an enormous bunch of, bunch of ponces. They sort it out. Ella, Bella goes home with uh, Edward and uh, Jacob broods and goes, well, you know, I'll love you until your heart stops beating, and then that's I won't. That's a bit later, isn't it? Because they, the, they, leave, they leave the stand, the Volturi leave the standing instruction that now that Bella knows about them, knows about the vampires, she's got to be a vampire. They have to basically either turn her or kill her. Yeah. And if they don't, then the Volturi will come and either turn her or kill her. But most... Yeah, Most they also want her. her because of her powers of uh, blocking stuff, and it's again, it's very X Men. It's like you know the uh, the, the, the the Hellfire Club, completely yes. the Hellfire Club, bunch Indeed. of ponces. Anyway, um, but the without other... Emma Frost cracking wise in the corner. Yeah, the other really good um, uh, bit in uh, New Moon is uh, a Tom York number. Uh, hearing damage, which takes place earlier in the film when Victoria's tear-assing around the forest. and um, It's it's guided by the music, and it's set to this really sort of thumping piece that I'm going to play for you guys right now. But um, it's really moody, and it's really sort of excellently shot, and, uh, you know, one of my favourite bits of the uh, series. I think the music in this whole saga is a huge part of um, creating that feeling of everything being emotion led Mm. Um, because ultimately it's all quite modern apart from the odd piece of Debussy and and things like that but it's they really capture that sort of deep brooding adolescent intensity type music um, that I mean, they even finished like the first film with Linkin Park. I was just about to say, you've got Muse, you've got Linkin Park, you know, that, that kind of new metal uh, emotion rock thing um, that I have no word for because my knowledge of musical genres is terrible. Um, if it had been done in the 80s, it would have been all new romantic. Yes! <laughs> yes, it would. 
It totally would. There would have been so much Duran Duran in there, it would hurt. Nice. So let's move on to Eclipse from 2010, directed by David Slade, he of Hard Candy and 30 Days of Night. Victoria forms an army of strong newborn vampires to kill Bella and also, if possible, the Cullens. The Cullens team up with the werewolves and hide Bella in a tent. Jacob makes a clumsy move for her and when it's clear she'll choose Edward over him, he runs off. There's a big fight with vampires and werewolves. The good guys win. Victoria and her army are killed. And that's it. This is actually my favourite of the series. It, it's not really much actually happens. It doesn't develop the story all that much. It's kind of just a reprise of the themes of the... It technically didn't even really have to happen. They could technically have jumped straight to Breaking Dawn Part 1. There's, I mean, they could basically have cleared up some of this just by killing Victoria in the second one. And having Bella say, really, Jacob, no. Uh, but it's my favorite. And um, when it comes down to it, it's because each film is a different type of film. The first one is a, uh, uh, a teen romance. The second is a teen romance melodrama because it's, it's, it's led a lot by a sense of loss rather than discovery. Uh, this third one is a fantasy, well, a fantasy sci-fi with slight horror overtones as well, um, hence them getting David Slade. And uh, the um, next one, uh, Breaking Dawn Part 1, is a uh, kind of a family drama again. It's, it's, um, it's more like Steel Magnolias or something like that. It's, it, it changes again. And then Breaking Dawn Part 2 again goes back to sort of a sci-fi fantasy uh, with, I suppose, melodrama overtones. But this middle one feels very, very competent. It feels very whippy and pacey and that they, they set up who everyone is very quickly and, and you're, that you're on board. There's a lot less extraneous exposition and a lot more characterization. This is the one where the Cullens step forwards and um, uh, Jasper... Uh, the uh, previously mostly silent uh, guy played by Jackson Rathbone, who folks will remember played Soka in The Last Airbender and so immediately got hatred from me for the first two films. 
suddenly comes through as a really quite interesting character and actually pretty excellently performed. Nikki Reed as Rosalie Hale, even more so, suddenly comes through and you're like, wow, there's depth to these guys. And this is the one which, if it, basically, I, you, if I was going to suggest anything to anyone, if they're newcomers to the series, start with Eclipse. It sets the tone much better than the first two if you're a boy or if you're a girl who doesn't like a lot of melodrama. It's worth noting, by the way, that um, in in terms of how the books were structured, um, Stephanie Meyer specifically based um, them on different uh, literary classics. So she she kind of framed Twilight around Pride and Prejudice um, and New Moon was um, based on Romeo and Juliet and Eclipse was based on Wuthering Heights. Uh-huh. Which out of those three, Wuthering Heights is far and away my favourite literary Which one's the fourth based on? Uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. Oh, I can see that, yeah. Okay. Uh, and yeah, the other thing is it's got uh, a musical score by Howard Shaw of the Lord of the Rings films. So even if I closed my eyes and didn't hear any words throughout the film, it's immediately going to capture me on an elemental level. And like I said, the uh, the focus on characterization and the performances suddenly jump up. Not so much for um, uh, the the main three who've been who, who remain as pretty consistent with uh, who they are, but the supporting cast most definitely. And Slade definitely takes this a lot more seriously than the first two. Well, he's got form with vampire stuff. Mm. I say a lot more seriously. Maybe it's him taking it a bit less seriously, actually. I don't know, he hits just the right tone where it's like, okay, there's real danger at this point. Mm. But he doesn't go in, get bogged down with detail that we don't need to know about. It is pretty sparse. Mm. Also, it's the only film in the series with consistently decent action sequences. Now, this is obviously kind of a lavish thing to say, but there is many points throughout the other four films where I was going, ooh, because there's just bits that look really awful. And it's, it's like, well, this, is, this film, Twilight, the original Twilight, $38 million, I suppose they had a pretty low budget, but it's like TV movie levels of running about the place and the werewolves aren't fully realized. And Stephanie Meyer did a uh, commentary on this third one and actually comes through as, as quite professional. And she pointed out that she quite likes that, how they realized werewolves in this with human eyes rather than these sort of animal ones. And it, um, it makes them seem more... Um, palpable and the werewolves themselves are absolutely fucking mahoosive and they seem kind of like, like extremely dynamic dire wolves if you're big fans of game of thrones the the effects on the wolves are great in this one yeah and then of course there's the tent scene sharon you want to describe what happens here the tent scene <laughs> right okay you may have to excuse me if my voice cracks at any point um basically in some kind of really roundabout, pointless narrative contrivance that exists solely to get Bella, Edward and Jacob in a small space away from everybody else. They're hiding That's all Bella, it exists for. Who, Basically, by the way, is Bella is very much a flag in this oh, film. she totally The is. newborns want her. The Cullens want to protect her. The yeah, werewolves the are thinking about it either her, way. Then, yeah. Yeah, and when the wolves, are, this is while while the wolves and the new are preparing to fight the, and sorry, this is while the wolves and the Cullens are preparing to fight the newborns. And I think I actually, when we first saw it, turned off the soundtrack and put on "Frankie Goes to Hollywood." When two tribes go to war, 
and it worked really well. It synced up when the actual fighting broke out. It did, yeah. But uh, but, but yeah, carry on, the, yeah. They're, they're so, off in a so tent. This, this to fight hide is her. is about to kick off, and um, the deal is that they have to keep Bella away from um, the the area so that the Volturi won't realise that she's still human and blah blah blah. So Edward goes with her, and um, and then. But there's something like they have to to get her up to this tent that's halfway up a mountain. She can't walk because Victoria will smell her trail and know that that's where she's gone. And so and then they go, but um, and she'll smell Edward if Edward takes her. But Jacob can carry her. And then all she'll be able to smell is wolf. Um, And so that's that's the idea. And so Jacob in his big manly muscles gets to carry Bella up this mountain. (laughs) Well, good for him. <laughs> and so they all end up in this tent. And um, Bella's freezing because, of course, um, Edward is cold. Yes, he is, and so it didn't no occur to him that a snowy mountain was probably not the best place to take refuge. And he can't do anything about the fact that Bella any is freezing to death. <laughs> so she's lying there in this sleeping bag, like Parker and Mittens up to the eyeballs, but still really shivering really badly. And then suddenly they realise that one of the side effects of Jacob being a werewolf is that his body temperature is very high compared to normal humans. Which makes him extremely hot. Yes. Like he walks around on this freezing mountain without a shirt. Without a, He goes most places without a shirt these days, primarily because, right, when the guys who turn into wolves turn into wolves, they all their clothes their fall off instantly. <laughs> instantly. Never in these films do you see them turn back from wolves into humans because they'd be running around buck naked and Fucking. we can't possibly have that. Um, so, yeah, so so the basically Jacob comes into the tent in order to keep Bella warm, which gives rise to one of the most awesome lines in a film ever. Let's face it, I am hotter than you. He's got you there. Uh, It's it's a nice rejoinder because uh, Edward himself says earlier, doesn't he have a shirt? (laughs) Yeah, he owns no shirts at this point. This Um, is kind of a dry, it's like a a bit more of a sort of an outsider's take on the Twilight Saga. Yes. Slade was bought in, he did his thing, then he left. Yeah. And and it's basically like, right, okay, so so basically all of these characters exist to do is to sit in a small space and create immense unresolved sexual tension. uh, Which which will never be Let the slash fix comments. Oh, and it did. Um so um so yeah. There's that. So, yeah, so he, Jacob ends up in the sleeping bag with Bella trying to keep her warm and she falls asleep, which is just... Seriously? That's the situation you find yourself in and you fall asleep? My sympathy for this girl is rapidly disappearing out the window. Um, but she properly snuggles. She's like, mmm, this is really good. Originally, in their, in their first uh, time they were attempting it while they were filming, um, the, Jacob sort of got in the sleeping bag and then retreated from her and sort of like wouldn't touch her or anything. And it really didn't work with the scene. So uh, Stephanie said, nah, they probably need to hug at this point, at least. Yeah. In fact, doesn't he actually say she'd warm up faster if she took her clothes off? Yes. <laughs> you know, I Go can think of about thought. four other things that would warm you up faster. Indeed. Yeah. But... Uh, the downside of this, um, yeah. and and although 
yes, I could watch that scene on a loop for the rest of my life quite happily. Um, There is a downside to this, which is that it it kind of emphasises this utterly constructed and totally false dichotomy between Edward and Jacob. It, It doesn't exist. First of all, because as you've already said, in New Moon, it's made pretty damn clear there is no real choice because she's already given her heart to Edward and she does not have it to give to anyone else anymore. He took that choice away and went, I'm not going to be with you. So she didn't have that choice to make anymore. Exactly. She took it back and reclaimed him. But it's always been by circumstance. Other people's decisions, not hers. So there's that side of things. What What I mean is she decides on Edward. And then Edward leaves. And then, so she's kind of hanging out with Jacob through not having anybody else around. And then Edward comes back. No, no, he doesn't come back. She goes to get him. Okay. I need an earwig. A what? An earwig? It's like a a rotten potato that two people flip. Seriously, we could use it. Oh, well, no, you can't. Yeah, well, we got y'all's toothbrushes, so it's like, uh, viva la toothy. Seriously, she's, she is proactive. She is not just waiting. She's not a flag until the third one. Mm. Okay. She's not just waiting around. I mean, uh, technically she's a flag where in the... No, actually, because even then, James doesn't kidnap her. He lures her into a trap by saying that he's got her mother, and so she makes the decision she, to go and get her yeah, mother. Yeah, she does have that great line of um, dying in the place of someone I love seems like a pretty good way to go. Yeah, that's a good way. To, that's how it's, they start the first movie. And you're like, okay, right. For, for a start, you can't not empathize with a character who is selfless enough to believe that straight away. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you know, after that, she's then, she's, it sort of starts her in good footing. Yeah. No, that's that's very true. It and, makes and her do, not just a ridiculously self-absorbed and vacuous person. Indeed, and I really do like the Bella in these films a lot more than I liked the Bella in the books. And mm. I think a lot of that is to do with the the narrative techniques, because in the book, so much of it at the very tail end, I think, is is from Jacob's perspective, but so much of it is from Bella's perspective. That all you see is what she sees and how she interprets things, and. It's the it's the things outside of that that I find more interesting. Um, but the the artificiality of the difference between Edward and Jacob is is kind of what I'm talking about at this point. That you've got Edward set up as this sort of very Victorian gentleman, and you know because he's said so and you kind of get a few examples where they try to kiss and he has to pull back and he can't control himself and i want you so much i'm about to drain like to neck and all the rest of it um but but he, he's you know he has all these incredibly animalistic urges it's just that he keeps them all under this very refined control and and sort of all under the surface jacob has all of these incredibly animalistic urges, but he wears them all on his sleeves, or at least he would if he had any sleeves, which of course he doesn't because he wears a <laughs> shirt all the time. But the point Instantly. being, there's, there's not really, she's not, it kind of makes this idea of blokes are all animals, sort of. You just have to decide which version of the animal you're, more comfortable with i don't know it just it feels a bit wrong hmm. 
only on an intellectual level, though. And again, this is where the whole, you know, emotional and other strings being pulled by people who clearly know what they're doing. You kind of go with it in in the moment of the film. It, It feels it works. But then my brain kicks in and goes, but it shouldn't. The werewolves and the Cullens have been training to fight these newborns who are, we are told are going to be super strong, super badasses. And they're, you know, they're, they're like 10 times stronger than regular vampires because they, you know, when you're first made into a vampire, you have this in natural survival instinct, which makes you super strong. Um, so they, they do all these practice runs and then they're teaching the werewolves how to take down newborn vampires. And it's, it's quite uneasy in the way they're, they're training. But at the same time, you get to see some pretty awesome vampire action. But then when the newborns actually attack, and we've seen already that they're just basically street kids and, and just regular kids on the streets of Seattle uh, who've been suddenly turned and don't know what the hell's going on. And they've been told by Victoria they've got to kill these people. And they come out of the water like the Pirates of the Caribbean. It's like, oh, my God, they're going to fucking... And then the fight happens. It's like, wow, the Cullens and the werewolves just carve them to pieces. They fucking lay them out. They destroy them. And it's kind of like watching a really unbalanced game of StarCraft. <laughs> you know, like a complete amateur sort of charges in there and then gets destroyed by the experienced player. You're like, wow, all of that build-up and then nada. It just deflates like a flan in a cupboard. And Victoria herself has like sort of been this, this made out to be this incredibly deadly hunter. And she's not really very tactically astute and gets taken out way too easily. And then the film ends. And you're like, oh. So, like I said, it's my favourite of the lot. And it's probably the most superfluous, weirdly enough. Yeah, the, the ending is basically, they decide to tell Charlie about their engagement. That's the ending of Eclipse. They could have done that at the ending of... Well, basically, it's just like the conversation that immediately follows the last line of uh, New Moon, which is, Bella, will you marry me? (gasps) Oh, my God. All the girls in the audience squeal. (laughs) Sorry, ladies listening to this one. I'm not lumping you in with all the Twilight fans. But uh, that that appears to be how it's um, positioned. But, yeah, all of these newborn vampires are positioned as as ill-coordinated children who get killed to bits. And yeah, the Volturi show up and go, how come she's not a vampire? And then horribly kill one of the uh, last remaining newborns who was being protected by the Cullens. Not very well. And you're like, wow, this now confirms that the Volturi are assholes, something that was already confirmed by the second film. So really, Eclipse doesn't really do anything. But what it does not do, it does not do really well. Yeah, it, it basically intensifies everything that's already been set up. Yeah. I was a little theatrical back then. Things got better after I found Emmett. But we'll always be this. Frozen. Never moving forward. That's what I miss the most. Possibilities. Sitting on a front porch somewhere. Emmett gray-haired by my side. Surrounded by our grandchildren. 
their laughter. I understand that that's what you want. There's nothing I'm ever gonna want more than Edward. You're wrong again. After you've been changed, there's one thing you'll want more. One thing you'll kill for. Blood. Breaking Dawn. Okay, uh, I'm gonna have to describe what's going on because no one's talking in this trailer. Uh, a woman just walked down a hallway. She's she has a silver tray with a special letter. Oh, here's Michael Sheen, the crazy vampire. Oh, he's invited to a wedding. Charlie, that's Bella's dad. He's invited to Bella's mum. She's invited. Oh man, it's gonna be the party event of the season um, on November 18th. Oh, 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 Jacob. Oh, he's got an invitation. Oh, he is not happy. He's taken off his shirt. That took a oof, 42 seconds. Uh, yep. Okay, uh, Jacob's dad's worried about him. He's turned into a wolf. He's turned into a wolf. Okay, right. So he's, uh, yeah, he's checking the invitation. Of course, it's Isabella Swan and Edward's wedding. You are cordially invited. And then, like, there's Bella's hand to the event. And Bella's head. Such lovely hair. Uh, they're at their wedding now. She's walking down the aisle. And then Edward, oh, he's smirking. He's, he's smug and thick and indiscreet. Uh, it's, it's our pats. What can I say? And, uh, yep, she's looking at him. He's so gorgeous. Oof. From the worldwide bestseller, hmm. No measure of time with you would be long enough. But we'll start with forever. Now they're having sex. He's breaking the bed! He's breaking the bed! And now they're in the jungle. They're having sex in the waterfall. It's only the beginning. And then, oh, some guy just threw some girl. Don't know what that's about. Then Edward kisses Bella's head. Then there's Jacob. Then Edward again. And then they get in a fight. And oh my, oh man. Okay, right, fight's over. Oh, something's wrong. Bella's checking her lovely flat stomach, but she feels a weird stirring inside. Could it be a weird vampire-human-hybrid-demon baby? Edward looks worried. Yes, it probably is. The Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn Part 1. November 18th, like several years ago. So Breaking Dawn Part 1, 2011, directed by Bill Condon, who has previously directed dramas like... Uh, Gods and Monsters starring Ian McKellen and that's what he's famed for and that's that's really why he was chosen to direct the most dramatic of the lot. Um, Bella and Edward are married. Jacob is shocked to find out they're going to have sex on their honeymoon while Bella is still a human. They go to a gorgeous tropical island and enjoy idyllic bliss while fucking roughly and breaking the bed. Not Bella that you see any of that of course. It's implied. Bella gets pregnant and the fetus matures extremely fast. It is a half vampire and begins to feed on its mother, killing her. The werewolves decide to slaughter this unholy half-breed. Jacob guards Bella grudgingly, but when the baby is born, he realizes Bella's child is his soulmate. He sees off the other werewolves and Bella begins to die and Edward turns her into a vampire. Right. This first one's patchy, but actually ended really quite well to the point where I was like, wow, they, that could actually have been the ending. Mm. We yeah. don't necessarily need another film to follow up on this. Kind of like with how uh, uh, Eclipse was a superfluous addition to um, New Moon. 
So technically, if you wanted to just see a, a shorthand version of Twilight, just watch Twilight, New Moon, and Breaking Dawn Part 1. Interesting. That I works might as a have trilogy. to try that and see how well it works. Yeah, you'd be cutting out the best of the five, but uh, technically, in terms of plot and development, those are the three. You meet Edward, you meet Jacob, and then that gets resolved in this, this fourth one. Oh, God, I'm right. Okay, now here's where it falls down because it starts off really quite good because Bella's really anxiety-ridden about the marriage. She's like, oh God, what's going to happen? I'm going to leave my family behind. This is the time when she's at her most um, conscious about other people and you feel for her more because she's feeling kind of selfless at this point and at the same time um, she's mourning her life, which she's having to say goodbye to. But at the same time, she's also going on a gorgeous honeymoon with Edward. Now, both of these films, of the Breaking Dawn films, follow the most consistently strong film of the series, at least strong in terms of how it's presented, Eclipse. Uh, But they are thus a lot more patchy in what we're actually watching if you're like me and you don't really like all the drippiness. If you really do like the drippiness, then they're wonderful, full of that. Um, Like I said, the wedding is suitably anxiety-ridden, and for some reason, Jacob is now Wolverine, and he's off in the forest chopping down trees and being really angry without a shirt while Bella's getting married, and then shows up at the uh, after the wedding and is quite gentlemanly about it and and quite, you know, well, you you did what you had to do, and I'm I'm very happy for you. But then he finds out that Bella might have sex with a vampire, and that will hurt her. And so he's like, oh, God, I forbid it. No, no. And of the two of them throughout this series, Jacob's the most possessive, most definitely. He's, he's under the impression that what Bella wants is going to get her killed and that she's not really of, uh, her, in her right mind and he's trying to make her sane the whole way through. That is true. However, <laughs> and again, this is possibly where the bias is going to come into it. Um, I think he, he is at least, he does have the decency to be conflicted about it. So he'll, hmm. he'll tell her, you mustn't do this, and then he'll go, but I don't have the right to tell you not to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so well, he does at least really, acknowledge that it's, it's not on. He's only like 16, 17. We don't make our best speeches or decisions at that age. In fact, he's a lot more articulate than most 16-year-olds. Yeah. So, um, yeah. But after that, we get to the honeymoon, and my God, this drags. There is an overabundance of idealized wish fulfillment during the honeymoon section. And if you really want to see Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson simulating sex, then this is going to be brilliant for you. If you aren't really all that fussed and are more interested in the emotional developments, you've got a while to wait. The emotional developments are Edward has sex with her, but then he leaves bruises on her and he goes, oh, see, I'm not going to touch you now. And then he won't touch her. And so she is climbing the walls with the horn and like, you know, teasing him with lingerie and, and like sort of like dreaming that he's having sex with her, but she, he's not. And so she's like, me want penis. And well, that's literally what she says. And um, it's not literally what she And it's says. like, oh, I've got this perfect honeymoon, but he won't have sex with me. It's like, oh, for fuck's sake, grow up hair. You're about to say goodbye to your entire family. In fact, you kind of have already. There's other things at work here. I have limited sympathy. This is what you chose. Have sex with him when you're a vampire. 
But anyway, because they have sex, she gets pregnant and then everything goes very, very wrong fairly quickly. And it's the rude awakening to the idyllic dream. And I was like, wow, okay, that kind of balances out all of that crapola um, because suddenly it's – I suppose you could look at it as, as – um, you know those uh, videos that they show girls in sex ed where they're like, and you could get pregnant – and then, like they they then show you a twenty minute video that really unglamorizes pregnancy and makes it seem like you know, I can't come out and play with you guys. Because I have a baby now because of prom. <laughs> and uh, uh, but yeah, I, I imagine the uh, the girls get shown something even worse, where it's like, and this is what happens when the placenta comes out. That's, that's pretty much it. I never saw any videos at school that that sort of unglamorized pregnancy or or like motherhood or anything like that but i sure as hell saw one that unglamorized labor that's if labor was ever glamorized in the first place which of course it wasn't but well no sometimes they gloss over and go and then a baby pops out and it's all lovely they really don't do that in this one Mm. basically um because the kid is a vampire it's feeding off bella it's feeding off her mother and she becomes like a concentration camp uh victim and her skin becomes drawn, her arms become stick thin. It's really quite upsetting to watch. Yeah, I think the, the essence of it is that because um, the, the fetus wants blood, and because Bella is not eating blood, all it's got access to is her blood. So it's consuming that yeah. and, and preventing her from... Uh, getting any nutrition herself she can't you know she can't keep any food down because it doesn't want regular food it wants blood and yeah. it it is kind of if you look at, at um some people have very difficult pregnancies yeah um or th- where they have um basically remember what my morning sickness was like yeah imagine that 18 hours a day every day until you give birth or imagine a uh, uh, pregnancy for a vegetarian woman who really can't touch meat, but the baby wants meat. That's probably the best, uh, best parallel, only it's obviously a lot, lot worse. Because she has to effectively drink a Slurpee cup full of blood, mm. which kind of turned my stomach. <laughs> and, and yeah, they, they don't... Um, uh, Kristen Stewart, to her credit, they, they really rough her up in this one. It is not sexy. Mm. And... Um, uh, she goes through a physical transformation and she sells it and it's very powerfully realized. She does. She sells it as well, I would say, as she sells the depression in New Moon. Yeah. In the meantime, everybody's freaking out about this baby. The werewolves who were previously allied with the Cullens and are like, what the fuck? Half vampire, half human. No, this thing it will just destroy us all because it'll be so hungry and it won't know how to stop and blah, 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 blah. blah. And they appear to be as scared of it as what the Volturi suspect it will be in film two, which is an immortal child, which is like a kid who, when it throws a tantrum can destroy villages. Um, And again, this is unfortunately heavily steeped in the mythos. And the problem is you can get everything else about it except for the will she'll give birth to an abomination. Everything else is an analog for something in real life what she's going to give birth to doesn't really happen in real life. Not in a sort of, this baby will destroy us all kind of way. Metaphorically, maybe, but not literally. So all the wolves want to kill it. And Jacob originally is very, very stressed out and angry over it, but eventually grudgingly starts to um, try to protect Bella, you know, while she's still human 
Um, I think there's, there's various rules flung up at this point. Like suddenly now that it's convenient, it's like, oh yeah, werewolves can't kill humans. Werewolves are trying to protect humans, despite the fact that throughout mythology, werewolves prey upon humans. Uh, so yeah. Well, they're Vampire- not like again. They're not werewolves. They are they're shape animagus shifters. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean that's fine. Ultimately, I've I've had a lot of people say Twilight is bad because it doesn't follow the rules of our mythology. Fuck bollocks, bollocks. The, uh, Stephanie Meyer absolutely has a right to tweak and twist whatever mythology she wants to, as long as it obeys its own internal logic and it is, it it's does. not it doesn't fall prey to uh, convenience. Sometimes, especially in the fifth film, it falls prey to uh, narrative contrivance. It does, and you have certain things which has to be explained in a sentence or two because you haven't even mentioned them earlier on. Yeah. But bear in mind, even Jo Rowling wrote herself into corners repeatedly throughout the Harry Potter series where she had, you know, wrote silly things because they were cool to begin with and then she had to deal with them in a serious context. Mm. Um, But yeah, no, there's... there's You can write anything about vampires because they don't exist. You don't have to change the rules of things that do exist... And even if they did exist and you change the rules, it doesn't matter. It's fiction. It fits into that story. I don't like or care about the way that vampires are portrayed in this. They seem like a bunch of ponces and um, there aren't enough weaknesses to them to really sell the whole vampirism thing. And everything is just too peachy for them. The werewolves thing I kind of like more. And the other thing is, of course, it it, uh, makes a big deal of uh, Native Americans, which doesn't really get done that much outside of a Western setting. Mm, Although they didn't go out of their way to hire First Nation actors. No, although they did find out after a lot of them had been hired because they looked right for the parts that they did actually have Native American blood in their families. Um, yeah. But I think... At it the, wasn't at the top of their priorities list. No. And, uh, I mean, it's the fact rare it's, enough yeah, that but it it's, it's not a, Especially a blockbuster. A, it's not based on a um, some kind of uh, hypothetical imaginary tribe. The, the, uh, is it Quilutes? I'm sorry, my pronunciation is abysmal. Um, it, it is actually based on the, the real native people who live in that area. Mm. Um, so there is that, although apparently that has led to some slight difficulties in that there are now coachloads of tourists wanting to see all the twilight area, um, oh, yeah. which means that they are basically trekking all over native land, which no no permission has been obtained for them to do this. And it's it's a bit, you know iffy it's a lot yeah to say yeah well, <laughs> have some goddamn respect absolutely um but if you'd like twilight you'll respect the people that it's actually emulating one would hope so um but part of of what that that side of the mythology leads on to is one of my favorite bits in this film and i know it was one of your favorite bits too <sighs> okay the, the the werewolf thing also involves imprinting on a partner and uh, there's various humans who live with the werewolves and become their um, other halves and mates yeah and um, the you get to see a couple of ladies who have actually um, both fallen for the same guy and he ended up opting for one of them that he imprinted on the idea being that he suddenly realized he was her the word imprint is used as an analog for soulmate he realized she was his soulmate which left the other one kind of out in the cold. Um, she but, is a wolf herself, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. Now, the 
the iffy thing develops when in the book specifically this was shown in a far more overt light and in a, it, it became really quite creepy there's it one of the werewolves creepy. on the beach with a little girl looking after her turns out he's imprinted on her and she's going to be his wife at some point and there's no way to write that and not make it seem really fucking creepy you can't write that without coming off uneasy and in the film they don't make too much of a deal out of it um they it just seems like a guy with his daughter uh, on the beach and they, they seem to be happy enough and they don't really emphasize it too much later on the whole point of uh, jacob is first off he's fighting for dominance of the control of the wolf pack so that he can stop them from killing um uh, the baby who is named Renesme after uh, Bella's mother and uh, Edward's mother, uh, Rene and Esme, uh, which emphasizes her half-breed status. Um, Rene, I might mention, by the way, is mainly communicated within the film in phone calls throughout all the uh, film series. She's not even bloody in this fifth one. Mm. I think she's at the wedding, but uh, in, in the last one, Charlie's in it and he gets to find out about Bella but not Rene and uh, whenever Bella talks to her she's like so how, tell me about the cute boys and the idea is that she's left her mother uh, because her mother wants to go out travelling with her new boyfriend and she's gone back to her father and um, so she seems like a nice mum but one who most definitely takes her own life over her daughter and that really isn't made that much of a big deal out of but I don't know The um, uh, Rene seems quite like she's happy to have sort of not cut Bella out of her life, but sort of, you know, that, that she's able to move on with her own life and that Bella's able to sort of do, you know, have a life in forks. Anyway, Jacob is very, very unhappy, especially when it seems like Bella's actually really, you know, getting hurt by this child and it's killing her. And he wants the, the baby to be killed uh, and uh, he wants the baby to be removed from her so that she has a vague chance of, of survival. So it becomes this kind of life or death situation where Bella is insisting, no, no, I want to have this child. Now, I can really relate to uh, feeling powerless uh, next to the uh, awesome power, next to the awesome presence of a mother who wants things exactly how she wants them in a birth scenario. So I was feeling for Jacob at this point. Um, you know, th this immense sense of worry for the woman you love and not being able to help her. All he can really do is try to deal with the other werewolves. So when it seems like Bella's died, Jacob goes off in anguish. But when he comes back in, he sees the baby being cradled by um, Rosalie. Rosalie, uh, Edward's sister figure. And immediately, and again, you can't write this in the book without it coming off as creepy. He sees his future wife and he's like, oh, God, that is the baby I want to fuck. <laughs> but That's not quite how it comes across in the book. Excuse me. May I finish? Yes, you may. Because that really needs to be finished. Um, that's not how it comes across when, it come, uh, when it's in the uh, film. That's not how it's written in the book, obviously. But that's how it comes across as your, if you see it written on paper or if someone else tells you about it. What he sees is flashes of the future and really wanting to protect and look after this child and be there for her 
and not let her come to any harm. And it's weird to say that there isn't any real lust involved in it at all. It's more about just making sure that she's happy, which comes off as really sweet and really altruistic and really touching and, you know, tapping into some of the best aspects of humanity back down to a primal level where you would die for somebody else. You would die to protect them. That is how we managed to stay together on the food chain and evolve to become who we were. That's a very basic human and indeed a a mammalian impulse. And so it's actually really well handled. And this was a part I was dreading. I I was too, particularly because the way it came across to me a little bit in the book, and I don't know whether this is intentional or whether it's just the way that I interpreted it, but it was kind of like the reason that Jacob has been drawn to Bella all this time is because she had an egg that was going to become the woman that he would imprint on. And he had a boner for this egg. Basically, yes. And that, to me, just seemed... It a can't not be wrong. creepy. That's, yeah. that's just a little bit wrong. But yeah, the, the way it was, it was put across, I mean, he, he sees her and he locks eyes with this child who five minutes ago he's been all for tearing to pieces because it's, it's killed Bella. I think that's it, basically. It's, it's, it's the turnaround. If he'd been sort of like, I, I can't wait for Bella's baby to be born, I, I can't wait to be its fun uncle, and then suddenly wants to shag it, you can't you can't come back from that. No, not really. You're in we can't put this movie out territory then. You are and it's a the bit. fact that it's like you killed Bella I, I will never be able to look you in the oh moments. No, well this is the thing and it, it's there's no words. He just he sees her and he just sings He realizes it's an epiphany. Yeah, absolutely. And do you know what? Do you know what? And I know we kept saying we must not keep comparing it to Harry Potter, but mm-hmm. do you know what it made me think of? Snape. Snape. Yeah. That he loved Bella so much that that it's almost like all of his protective feelings towards Bella, who he now knows he can no longer have in any way, shape or form, shift to Renesmee. And and for that that moment, and he does actually, when he tries to explain himself later on, um, it, it does come across that, that his urges towards her are in almost entirely almost paternal is that, is that protectiveness that you you know you want to look after this child and make sure that nothing ever harms her and then when the time is right <laughs> well uh, <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah so that that does and uh, there's another element of this um, of the the closing scenes of this that i really loved that was to do with um, with jacob as well which was that when he um realized that bella was dead after the uh, Renesmee has been delivered he walks outside and you can, you can kind of see the anger building in him and, and the, the whole uh, wolf transformation has always been linked to sort of you know testosterone and, and hormones and anger and, and frustration and all the rest of it and you're kind of thinking that he's basically going to walk out of the house transform and run off and he doesn't, he just stops and sits down and cries and it's like for that that moment he actually holds the emotion rather than just trying to outrun it and that really sold well i i am almost almost close to wanting to see this 
random action film that Taylor Lautner went and did. Oh my, it's terrible. Is it? All oh, right. Okay. It's called Hostage. It's right, I'll, I'll put that away then. Well, he's not been in much else, so basically you could you could have an ent- complete Taylor Lautner collection with one purchase. Mm. Yes, indeed. But he he does uh, put the emotional core of the character across very successfully, much more successfully than I would have expected that that character could come across. To be honest, go on. It's two percent. It's not. Isn't it? It's not uh, called hostage. It's called abduction. It's four percent. Oh my. Uh. Having said that, let's look at the percentages on the Twilight Saga, shall we? Twilight, 49%. Ew. Is that the worst Twilight film? That That was the the best best Twilight Twilight film. film. (laughs) New Moon, 28%. Jesus, it's not that bad. That's why Kermode's saying this is not for you. He's talking to the critics. critics. Eclipse, 49%. Bit of a step up. Breaking Dawn Part 1, 24%. And Breaking Dawn Part 2, which I'll reveal right now, is the worst one for me, 48%. Eclipse, like I say, is superfluous, but it's a bottle episode. It's getting all the characters together, cramming them in in a high-pressure situation and seeing what comes out of them. Nothing really, it doesn't really advance the plot, but you get great characterization. Breaking Dawn Part 2 is masturbation. It's just jacking it over the plot. It's like all the characterization has been shat out. It's like all the characterization has been fulfilled in the first part. The second part is all like, okay, we've got to have a big fantasy war. Let's do it. Let's do this. The Volturi need taking down. Do they? Do they really, though? At the very, very end of Breaking Dawn Part 1... Bella dies. Edward bites her repeatedly and uh, to try to keep her alive and injects her directly in the heart, like in Pulp Fiction, with his own venom. And this is a lot of venom. Apparently vampires um, like basically inject you with a bit of this like snake venom when they bite you, uh, which is what causes the vampirism, if allowed to spread. You have to destroy um, the bodies of the people you've bitten, uh, otherwise they turn. So he just like injects this into her heart, and her entire body knits itself back together while she's in a coma, and then she, uh, her, uh, her broken spine, because that's what the baby did to her, heals, and then her eyes open, and they're red, because all newborns' eyes are red, and all vampires that drink human blood are red. All vampires that drink deer blood and animal blood are lovely hazel colour. Except, of course, that humans are animals. That doesn't make any sense. But anyway, uh, so they're red and it's like, oh, I'm a vampire now. And that's it. That's how you end the series. No problem there. That makes perfect sense. She's chosen Edward. They've got a baby. Edward, uh, Jacob's got his, uh, his girlfriend for, for the future and at least his adopted niece of sorts. Uh, for, for now, the Cullens are fine. The werewolves are sort of grudgingly at peace with them. That's it. It's done. That is not to say that Breaking Dawn Part 2 is all bollocks. There are elements in it that are actually quite good. However, it is a much higher ratio of bollocks to good than any of the other four. And it is largely unnecessary bollocks, which is what makes it worse. Largely unnecessary bollocks is our Sex Pistols cover band. (laughs) If you love these shows and want to see them continue, remember we are on Patreon. On that note, I'd like to thank our special sponsors for this month. Nick Grugin, Joel Robinson, Ben Hayes, Stefan Gardinia, Kieran Datchler, 
Scott Corzine, Livio Dela Cruz, and Erish Traverse. And an extra special thanks to Erish, who donated very generously in a way that allowed two new Blue Yeti mics to be purchased for the new Century Audio Drama podcast. It will now sound even better, thanks to Erish. And to everyone else who supports these shows, either through Patreon or PayPal, or just spreading it around through social media, a huge thank you. If you haven't yet listened to the Secret Rooms podcast, go subscribe right now. It's bloody excellent. New episodes out every Wednesday, previews through the Patreon. He smiled broadly, revealing all three of his teeth and waggling his eyebrows. We talked some more about a local beast named the Green Monster, but he seemed of only passing familiarity, admitting to having never seen it himself either, describing it with increasingly ludicrous body details. Head of an ox, legs of a ram, body of a great big frog... Green and scaly all over and hung all about with swamp grass, with a back all ridged with poisonous spines. It makes a whistling noise you should listen out for, and if you pass by a certain nearby bridge on a Sunday without crossing yourself, it leaps out at you and gobbles your soul right down like a ham. Well, thank the good Lord it's a Thursday and we'll be long gone from here by then. No offense intended, sir, but this sounds like the most monster-infested town I've ever encountered. And I am a professional monster hunter. Oh, I'll bet there are places far stranger than this out there, young lady. These redcaps, wisps, and ghouls have been sleeping in their hollows for centuries and longer, emerging once in a while to frighten the bejesus out of unsuspected twerps like Colby. But now they're awake... And I don't think they'll be too happy to go back to bed again. Something about the conviction in his voice and the sudden solemnity of his eyes as he surveyed the four of us took me aback here. He wasn't trying to scare or entertain four strangers anymore. Then quick as a whip he was back to talking about a lasting feud between him and the local fishmonger and it appeared our show was over. We left Clendenin behind and made camp by the roadside that evening, the caravans in a circle, the stars wheeling overhead and a group of lookouts standing watchful all through the night. Bella is now a vampire, though she is angry that Jacob is in love with her baby. She and Edward move into a gorgeous cottage. The child Renesmee grows fast. The Volturi catch news of it and come to Forks to slaughter this unholy immortal child, while well, the werewolves attempted to before but didn't. Edward's sister figure, Alice, who can see the future, leaves. In- By the way, this is the longest because so much stuff happens and it's all plot related. Alice can see the future. She leaves just in case she can be used against her family. The Cullens gather a small group of loyal vampires with different magic powers to oppose the elders, one of whom can create massive illusions. Remember that for the future. They gather on a snowy battlefield, and Bella asserts that the child is not immortal and, in fact, has been aging rather a lot. Alice reappears to show the head Volturi, Arrow, that's Michael Sheen, that the child will not pose a threat. This guy also played Tony Blair at least twice. She realises he intends to attack nonetheless, like Tony Blair. A terrible battle breaks out in which several main characters are killed. Then Arrow is beheaded and the scene goes back to the moment prior to the battle. 
It turns out it was all a massive illusion to make it clear how disastrous the fight would be for everyone. Alice wheels out a young man whom it transpires is several hundred years old and a half vampire, proof that Renesmee will blend perfectly with their race. The Volturi leave the Cullens in peace. Alice sees a future with Edward and Bella together on the beach, along with Jacob and his partner, a grown Renesmee. Thanks to another werewolf power, not mentioned anywhere else, Jacob will also not age while he is around her. Bella gives Edward a memory parcel showing the story of their love together and they all lived happily ever after, forever young and beautiful. Now, can you tell what problems I have with this story? Right, I am looking right here at a sea of red issues that I have with this film. It didn't really strike me while I was watching it, but it really is. In terms of the stories like these, it's all in how you end it. And what Deathly Hallows does so right, this does so wrong. And it's really unfair to compare this to Harry Potter. But at the same time, it does invite that comparison because it was another major book craze. And it, it, had, it has a similarly enormous fan following. It has its own mythology uh, and it deals with death and life and love and sacrifice in roughly the same way. But its conclusions are vastly different. So let's start with point number one. Bella, as a vampire, becomes a lot less likable and utterly self-absorbed. She does do the Mary Sue morph, doesn't she? Yeah. All her previous awkwardness and lack of fashion sense and occasionally bad hair just disappears out the window and she's perfect. When does she have occasionally bad hair? When she's pregnant, her hair looks pretty bad. I suppose so, yeah. She looks like a friggin' supermodel at this point. She is like... Because that's the thing. Vampires are, like, naturally hot. That's their thing. They look pale and striking, but they're also beautiful. Uh, but, yeah, Bella's a vampire. And it, it, I'm specifically thinking about here uh, when she finds out that uh, Jacob loves Renesmee. She's like, you fucking imprint on my daughter? And she's, like, pushing him around, shouting at him in front of the Cullens, throws him out using her super strength. And the Cullens are sort of watching uneasily. Edward, meanwhile, is smirking and going, <laughs> cool. He's and such he, a dick in this. He, he is really a is. He is a total fucking dick in, this. dick in this. He becomes a smirking, favoured son of an extremely rich, reclusive cult. He has no responsibilities or worries now. Before Bella was a vampire, he was worried about her, and that made him very grave all the time. Now she's a vampire and can't be hurt, and he, she's actually a bit stronger than him. And he's like, you're going to not hurt me now? Um... He's like, oh, yeah, life's good. All right, all right. Everything's peachy. Uh-huh. Not, I, he should transfer that worry to his daughter, Renesmee. He should be like, we've got to protect her. His paternal instinct should kick in at this point, And he should become a man. Not that you have to have a child to become a man. But he's a fucking boy. And like I said, the richness thing really does show through. Like they, they retire to this cottage and it's gorgeous. And you realize, oh, hey, hang on. Edward doesn't have to work. Edward doesn't have to do anything. Edward doesn't have any responsibilities at all. Like I said, he's just a rich Lothario, the son of a rich man. He inherited this fucking wealth. He doesn't, he doesn't do anything. 
he is a perpetual student because they, they say this early on because they keep moving from town to town to town. If they start off fairly young, yeah. telling people that they are 16, 17, 18, then they can stay there a lot longer, which means that he spends a lot of time in school and in college and, you know, just. He occasionally implies being in the first, indulged. He occasionally implies in the first few movies that things are not fantastic or peachy being immortal and you're quite lonely and reclusive but no you can do what you want you got the wealth you got hang on now i'm not saying all rich people don't have problems of course they do but uh i like sharon i kind of have limited sympathy for people who go oh it's terrible at the top and at the same time just sort of mooch about in their gorgeous houses and can't be hurt in any way. Specifically rich vampires. <laughs> and then, interestingly, you have the uh, idea that these, uh, these immensely rich people are, in some way, parasitic. Hmm. Yeah. Is that theory explored to any great depth? In no. This? No, of course it's not. Because these are the guys you want to be. Mm. They're, ri- they're celebrities, basically. Mm. <sighs> There is nothing that Stephanie Meyer likes more than the idea of being part of a, a, a rich, culty family. That's not to say that Mormons are a cult. The one person I did feel a stab of pity for is Charlie, her, Bella's father, because uh, he gets told by Jacob, who strips off and turns into a wolf in front of him to kind of make his point. Bella's involved in some shit now, and uh, she's not really supposed to see you, but I'll take you to her. And... Um, you know, his daughter's married into this new family and now suddenly has decided she can't see him ever again, which is is devastating, devastating to a father. And you'd, you've got all these questions to ask, or not just a father, but anybody who's close to someone else. And, and suddenly, you know, this is Scientology. This is, you know, suddenly the person you love has been absorbed into another family and you can't see them. So, and Bella's sort of, oh, this is awkward. It's like, I can't really tell you the answer to this question you're asking because the Volturi will kill you. But, yeah, she doesn't act like she really cares all that much at this point. It should be tearing her apart. Also, in a really poor move in terms of effects, they really need to make it clear that the child, Renesme, uh, is the same person that she's going to grow up to be um, when we see her in a, a few minutes' time as the sort of six-year-old, seven-year-old Renesmee. So they very unwisely, to my mind, take the face of this six-year-old, age it down and, and paste it on the baby using CG, and it looks like a fucking commercial. You know when they make babies dance in commercials and it looks creepy and it's that uncanny valley shit and your mind goes, no, this is wrong. If they're just trying to sell you a product, you could probably stand it for 30 seconds or so and go, ugh, I never want to see that again. But... If it's in a film, it boots you, Sparta-style, out of the film. You're like, why did they do that? Why didn't they just get a child who's six, a child who's four, related to that same child, so there's a physical resemblance, and then a baby? It doesn't, she doesn't have to look like that. She doesn't have to, to the degree where it kicks you out of the movie. And anybody who said, I don't have a problem with this, good. I'm, I'm glad that it worked for someone, but not for me. It's really creepy. 
It is. It made me feel a bit queasy. Yeah. It's like I said before, like putting dog eyes on a human or human eyes on a dog. They do that too with the werewolves. <laughs> there is quite a lot of uncanny valley in the uh, Twilight films. Although... All those obscenely realistic dolls. Yeah. So what the heck, no, 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 don't use that tone. Oh, he's such a sweet. Oh, 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 I'm gonna tell this. everyone that y'all never at Sea World. Yeah, that's right, you guys. Because I was doing crunches. Uh, Teen Wolf, let's start. Just chill. Choo, choo, choo. He's a meanie. He just hurt my feelings. Also, he hurt my skin. And and, and he and he gets poor grades. Okay, so then it gets onto the meat of the film and the Volturi are coming, so the Cullens have to get some backup, and they. Basically, do X Men Three: The Last Stand. They call all the mutants from around the world, bring them in, and uh, they've got all got mutant powers, and they sort of train at the ranch. And it's like, right, look what I can do. I can do this. I can make you know illusions happen. And look at this. I can I can do electric. And look at this. I can climb walls. And uh, yeah, they're, they're all kind of useful, but they 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 seem incongruous. Not so much. I mean, we've seen that these vampires have powers, but I'm not sure why they need these powers. Really. You just end up with this collection of um, cultural stereotypes with unusual abilities, but you don't learn anything about them as people. You don't. No. There's no attempt to characterize anybody. Well, there's you, a, like, you each have... of them gets about 12 seconds to show who they are, and then it moves on quick. That's why I have real reservations about X Men: Days of Future Past. I think it's going to be much the same. Yeah, but fortunately, get... we'll already know a lot of them. Yeah, but you you get the, for example, the Irish vampires, and mm. you know they're Irish vampires because they're wearing flat caps and buttonless waistcoats. What? What century did you acquire these Irish vampires from, exactly? <laughs> and there's like, uh, one of the vampires is basically Gambit. Yes, he is. <sighs> and he would have been a better Gambit than flipping um, Taylor Kitsch. Taylor Kitsch, yeah, he would have. He's played by Lee Pace, who is Thranduil in The Hobbit. So, yeah, anyway, but unfortunately they're also up against the Volturi, who are a bunch of ponces, inadequate antagonists, who weaken the protagonists with their lack of substance. And when they all turn up on the battlefield, it actually seems really like a small version of all of those battle sequences you get in every fantasy movie, specifically the last one of every fantasy movie. You know, uh, it's... Uh, it, it's smaller than the big fight in X-Men 3, which feels really small and crappy compared with stuff like the Avengers now that we have and compared with Lord of the Rings, which happened ages ago. You, you Like, if you're going to do a battle like that, what they did in Harry... Uh, I hate to keep bringing it up with Harry Potter, but the, there was a sense of real impending fear and doom uh, for this one. Like These are children up against... Nazi war criminals who have no compunction with with killing all of them, um, but with this it's like the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants versus the X Men. And so when the battle actually happens, and like all of this fighting and jumping all over the place takes place, and there's this, the Avatar is one of them. One of the good vampires can, can he can water bend, he can fire bend, he can earth bend, and I think he can air bend. And for some reason, the guy play, who played Soka doesn't go, are you the Avatar? Jackson Rathbone, yes. This is your moment. <laughs> yeah. But like, like he, he comes in in like the middle of the fight after several characters have been horribly killed suddenly. Like the first one was... Um, uh, Carlisle. 
Carlisle. And you went, <gasps> at that point. I'd forgotten yeah. that it was a fake out. He sort of leaps in and gets his head knocked off by um, Michael Sheen. And But the way it's directed, it's just so, like, it's not gleeful. It's just, like, boring action. And it just occurs over a long, long period of, like, jumping all over the place. And then, like, the Avatar starts, like, tearing apart the Earth halfway through. That's the guy you lead with. That's the guy you throw everyone off their feet with to begin with. There's no tactics in this thing. They all oh, just man. charge at each other. But then, I mean, I think the reason that I gasped when Carlisle got his head ripped off was that it, his race towards the Volturi was in defense of Alice. Alice yep. has been grabbed by them at this point. And I actually really got emotionally kind of connected with this because it's like you've got Edward is now a new father yeah. and that role is reflected in the fact that Carlisle is racing into danger to protect Alice, who is effectively his daughter. Yeah. But like I said, that it happens so quickly, like, huh? And there's no music attached to it. There's no emotion attached to it. They just move just, on but to it's the next. In, it's, I understand it's intentionally so, but it's just like, like horrible violence. It's not, it's, it's stylized, so it's supposed to look super badass, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's empty and full of nothing. Yeah. And then when it zips back to, oh, none of that actually happened, you're like, Ah. Yeah. But that doesn't then, change the then, fact that you've just sat through a boring-ass six-minute fight scene. Absolutely. But then, although I did react to um, Carlisle's death, then when the same thing happens to Jasper within a couple of minutes, I kind of I, I still didn't remember that it was a fake-out from the book, but I went, hang on a minute, something's not right here. Well, I was just desensitized at that point. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's well handled from the point of view that... that the Arrow can tell people's thoughts in the same way that Edward can read Bella's thoughts and Arrow when he holds... No, no, no. Edward can't read Bella's thoughts. Sorry. Edward can read everyone but Bella's thoughts. Bella is a shield and she uses her shield powers in this fight and, and as such, again, there's a similarity to Harry Potter in the book uh, during the final battle in Hogwarts and Harry actually gets involved. He's throwing out shield charms to protect people. That's what he wants to do. He's not being aggressive uh, with it. Um, and there is something about Bella not being violent and aggressive, even when her daughter is threatened, um, that's uh, uh, somehow elemental. But um, when it really comes down to it, it's just war is terrible and it will kill us all and nothing good will come of it. And Alice shows the man who was going to attack no matter what the consequences, which, fair enough, it's it's just a feeble battle in, in and of itself. But that, like... We're at the end of the film nearly and almost nothing happens. It's all just preparation for the Volturi and you get to meet like Dakota Fanning's brother played by um, Cameron Bright. Cameron Bright, um, who was, uh, oh, he was in X-Men 3 as well, actually. He was Leech, the one who takes away everyone's powers. Was he? Yeah. He got saved by Kitty Pride. Yeah. During that awful, I'm the juggernaut, bitch. Uh, sequence we're going to talk about x-men fairly soon um so let's just sweep all of that battle shit to one side because really this whole film leads up to a battle that really didn't actually need to happen at all the note it ends on we get to see um uh jacob with renesme and we get to see edward with bella and that's what alice sees in the future and that is their future and it's, it's wonderful and it's idyllic and it's glossy because the vastly increased me- metabolic rate that uh uh, when Esme is growing, she will reach maturity within seven years and um, be like a fully grown 21-year-old girl and then stick that way 
for hundreds and hundreds of years. Well, and how Jay- remarkably convenient. That is convenient, isn't it? Because <laughs> you'd think that there'd be something vaguely organic about it, and then she'd just age really, really slowly. But no, she just, uh, she just stops at the point where she's the most pretty and it's the most appropriate to be fucked. Um, hmm. Yeah. Also, um, Jacob's not aging isn't actually to do with him being around Renesme. It's to do with the healing abilities that the wolves have. As long as he phases regularly, all his cells will heal yeah. while he's in wolf form. So he doesn't actually get any older. So basically, the, the wolves, when they're around vampires... The, Jacob's family don't turn into wolves unless there are vampires near them. But when they do turn into wolves, they can heal like Wolverine and they can not age like Wolverine then. Mm. They can then at some point choose to stop turning into a wolf if they want to age normally. Uh-huh. Apparently. If Stephanie Meyer isn't a massive fan of X-Men, I'll be extremely surprised. Mm. And that's probably why I liked a lot of elements of these films. Because they sort of resonated with my you know, teenage version of me that read comics. And I think probably as a teenager, I'd probably have liked these films a bit more. Um, but anyway, and this really ties in with Harry Potter now. And I've got to use it as a comparison because it draws the opposite conclusions. The note it ends on is one of being able to live forever in pure bliss. This is a deeply troubling mentality to close out on as though all the hardship was just a rocky road up the ziggurat to heaven. And now, and from now on, everything's peachy forever. That's not how life works. There's a really quite powerful dream sequence at the beginning of the second movie, um, New Moon, where Bella sees Edward across the uh, 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 lovely meadow, and she goes to meet him. And then she sees her grandma across the meadow. And then she goes to meet her grandma, and it turns out it's her an extremely old version of Bella, which shows that Bella is terrified, terrified of growing old. And she says herself in this film, I was born to be a vampire. There's a lot of destiny. There's a lot of soulmates. There's a lot of this. It is written. There's a lot of, you know, this, this is was meant to be. Joe Rowling believes you make your own destiny. Uh, I personally subscribe to the idea that there's... Um, it's mostly you make your own, but there are a few things that you can sort of nudge in the same direction that kind of, um, it's difficult to say really. Certain events seem unavoidable at times. Anchor points in the river of time. There you go. It's a nice non-poncy way of putting it. But it doesn't really matter what I feel about it, it, it what, or, or how this clashes with my sensibilities. What worries me is this is not a model for life at all. Forever young and beautiful is not something to put into people's heads as a perfect ideal to reach for. At the end of Harry Potter, the fundamental difference between Harry and Tom and the fundamental difference in the Star Wars saga between Yoda and the Emperor is one accepts death, understands it, goes to meet it, uh, ultimately overcomes it by accepting that someday you are going to die, that getting old is part of life and that while we shouldn't necessarily invite it, being terrified of it to the point where we actually want to block it out or in Voldemort and the Emperor's case, put it off altogether. That's how Twilight ends. That's the happy ending, the denial of death. That seems very unnatural to me. And it's quite disturbing. Even if you are lucky enough to find the one you love, growing old with them 
should not be something you fear. Apparently, they actually did shoot a sequence where um, uh, Bella uh, opted to go with uh, Jacob and they grew old together. And apparently it was laughable. Why is that laughable? That's what every one of us has to do. No one lives forever. The problem is everything else in these films actually has an analog, apart from the whole immortal child thing, um, when it doesn't get too involved in the mythology of it, has an analog for a real life situation and sometimes having to choose between someone who really feels deep down right for you and someone who might seem to be uh, better for you in possibly the short term or maybe has your best interests at heart, but that you really feel drawn to this one person. I can get with that. But at the end, it would appear the fantasy and the mythology gets in the way of the actual analogous relevance to real life. It also pushes the soulmate agenda, which forces perfection on the life and love plan of girls in particular. It's already tough enough to find a partner, to hold down a partner, to force that girl to want to find someone who makes them feel like Edward makes Bella feel. At this point, we're getting a little bit close to Fifty Shades territory. It almost seems like the end of this was actually supposed to be Edward dies for Bella and she realizes she was in love with Jacob the whole time, but not that he's a second choice, but that she really would have been gone with him anyway, whether Edward had died at all or not that if nothing else would have actually characterized Edward as someone actually genuinely willing to sacrifice himself, maybe sacrifice himself for his daughter. And that's not me saying I wanted the film to end like this. It's me saying the way the film does end is genuinely troubling. There are, there is a lot of sweetness in the film. There are good, solid values in the series throughout. And ultimately, it's very difficult to argue with the idea that family is worth sacrificing everything for and being with the people that you love. And also the idea of inherited family and absorbed family and, and, and friends that become your family that's a wonderful idea, and it it's definitely uh, runs parallel with Harry Potter as well. Um, but eternal, the desperate preservation of life, youth, and beauty is transparently preying upon a very deeply rooted yet shallow human fear that needs to be confronted and accepted with our stories, with our stories, not ignored and distracted from with the fantasy. Anything to add to that? Um, I I was trying to think of anything I could add to what you were saying, but no, I I go with you wholly on on the vast majority of that. I mean, this is this is kind of what I was driving at when I was talking about them not examining immortality properly or p- properly, yeah. um, not looking at it in terms of what the drawbacks are and what it denies you if you are pursuing immortality. Um, I mean, the idea of this sort of heavenly little environment where Bella and Edward and uh, Renesmee and Jacob all get to be young and gorgeous forever and ever on this beautiful beach, um, nothing will ever change. That, that's, that's not life. 
life is, is something which is constantly evolving. Cyclical. And, yeah. And you, you, you have to adapt to, to new things. And it's setting up this idea that, this, that happiness is a moment that is frozen. Happiness yeah. is not a photograph. And it ends with uh, like, like, it ends actually with a series of photographs. Bella gives gives Edward a montage of bits from the film. I don't know if that was in the book. It's a nice little touch, but basically it it ends on a very kind of girls you know you love Twilight. Look at this, and here's a little flashback to all the little bits from the series as it goes along. Very little from Eclipse, interestingly enough. Yes, this- because Jacob's not in any of it. Yeah. because why would you show your husband that and yeah she shows him how much she loves him and she goes there's no no one in the world that loves as much as I love you and he says no there's one more which is basically have you ever sat on a train and seen two people gazing at each other I love you I love you more I would forgive men specifically or women who are not of that disposition for projectile vomiting at the screen at that stage <laughs> I just felt like Blackadder at that point. Oh, get out, you nauseating adolescence. And they're stuck like that forever. If that's basically how their love is, they're going to be going, I love you most. I love you more than most. That, that is something you do when you're young and super like hormonally driven and like, you know, you really love someone so fucking, fucking much. But you have to, you have to get over that basically, because you can't feel that intense all the time. You never get anything done. And that's the thing. The Cullens don't. They just sort of lounge about the place forever. Do you know, by the way, the evolutionary theory behind that kind of love? Uh, what? what? That basically it, it has evolved because it's the only thing strong enough to keep two parents together long enough to raise their child to about four or five years old, which is the age at which... A, the man goes, oh, fuck could, this! Well, th- this is the thing. The, the age at which a child could feasibly survive without the constant input of its parents. That is how long romantic love is supposed to keep you together until your kid is about four or five. That's awful. So did cavemen speak with W's instead of L's? I love you. I love you more. <laughs> I drag you by the hair. <laughs> Or we evolved slightly beyond that now. Well, yeah, I mean, evolutionary theory does rather fall down once you put it up against cultural context and all the rest of it, but there it is. Also, the thing about Bella being able to put these memories into Edward's head, that's all to do with her uh, control over her shield ability. Mm-hmm. That, that basically the reason he's never been able to read her thoughts is because she has this innate shield ability. In learning to project that shield beyond her own body, yeah. she also learns to contract it so she can actually bring it back far enough so that Edward can read her, can thoughts, read her yeah. thoughts. And that's okay. what, what she's showing him. Maybe that is in the book then. That actually stands to reason. But uh, I Ultimately, while I do have a problem with this, it may actually play in quite well with the belief systems of people who believe that you go to heaven and you live there forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And that's fine. And and in which case, this is the ending for you, because that is where she metaphorically goes. I personally subscribe to the idea of cycles, if anything, um, just going round and round and round. Um, 
but mainly because that's what everything that we observe on Earth and in the cosmos seems to subscribe to, the idea of cycles. Um, so, really, uh, really, I suppose, ultimately, there are going to be plenty, thousands, millions of, of people who love this ending. And, and that's fair enough. But it is the complete antithesis of the ending of Harry Potter, yeah. in which the whole point is that they have aged and they are watching the next generation mm. go on. And Joe specifically says that the uh, the brave thing is not dying. The brave thing is actually rebuilding after this trauma and uh, being able to come back from the war and actually have a life from that and moving forwards. And that's all about experiencing real life and not wallowing in fantasy. Mm. Yeah. yeah. There's there's no real loss. The the battle in which people die is entirely imagined. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know that they would sacrifice themselves for each other. Yeah, but they only ever have to do it in theory. Yeah. Well, that's not to say, it's actually quite refreshing that nobody dies. Because usually there's, you know, like specifically in Harry Potter, it actually became like clockwork at the end of every book. So after, after three, someone dies. <laughs> uh, but again, it's, it's not fair to constantly compare it to Harry Potter. I'm just, I'm holding that aloft right now as how exactly to do that. stories. There, there were people who said, yes, this is the, the next stage for all you people who love Harry Potter. Here's the next fantasy for you to attach your obsession to. Mm. So they started it. <laughs> So in summation, Twilight is now dirt cheap and you can pick up the first three for a penny on Amazon. It's at least worth picking them up to see if it's as unwatchable as you always suspected or if you might actually get something out of them. There are definitely worse ways to spend a few hours. So we'll be back soon with more Drift. Until then, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And Neural, Neural Handshake, handshake Complete. complete.